is There's Always Another Podcast, a show where we discuss the AMC series Halt and Catch Fire. On each episode, we will discuss one season. Tonight, we discuss the fourth and final season. My name is Jerome Cusan. I'm one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I have now seen all four seasons of Halt and Catch Fire twice. We are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that also includes... The following, oh, this list is getting so long, Pantheon Plus, There Will Be Movies, Flooping the Pig, and in the Archives, Real Bad, Mars Investigated, and From Broadcast Depth. Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work that we are doing here on The Real World. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has now seen the entire run of Halt and Catch Fire, and you can find him on Twitter at K413, and you can no longer spoil it because Kevin has seen it all. And Kevin, I have two very, very important questions for you as we start the podcast. Are you ready? I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go for it. Question number one. Are you sad, excited, confused by the fact that I spoiled the penultimate line of the show on our on the real world series finale or season finale. I don't even remember you doing that, so <sighs> I'm I'm terribly disappointed in you, which is a very fair representation of our relationship, I think. Yeah, it checks out. The other question is, can we please find Anna Chalumsky a a romantic partner or, or male friend that doesn't die? I don't know that she has a romantic partner that dies in Veep. I mean, but Veep is so toxic anyway. Like, would she ever find one? No. I mean, the relationship she at least had didn't end awesome, but at least he lived. I'm grading on a curve here. So, of course, I'm mentioning the fact that Anna Chomsky is perhaps best known for her role in My Girl. And spoilers for My Girl, uh, her Macaulay Culkin, her, her friend dies because he steps on a beehive and it's a it's a pretty it's pretty traumatizing i can't believe that was a kids movie in 1991 yeah the the standards and what we what we were exposed to have changed a lot but we turned out okay right hey i don't know i mean we're still podcasting i don't know if that's a good thing or not uh i would say it's definitely a bad thing i mean at least it's not about wrestling though that's true there are there's a there's been growth as one might say there has been growth. Okay, so we are going to get into the episodes, and we're going to kind of do what we've been doing, but I, I want to, at the top of the show, address Kevin's two predictions, just so they don't get lost. Not that they will, but there are two predictions that you made, Kevin Ford, one of which you were accurate on, and the other, you get I would say you get partial credit for. So one of your predictions was uh, that Gordon would not make it until the end of the season, and you were correct. And I'm really surprised that it wasn't foreshadowed more than it was. It feels like, and, and it definitely did not happen in the way that I thought because he moved homes, but it, it definitely felt very sudden when, when it happened. And there was little things here and there that made me think like, uh-oh, I think they were getting close to the end, but, it, but there wasn't as many as I think like, you know, you had mentioned so many times over the course of Breaking Bad or something like, here's all the tropes that let you know this character is going to die. And there wasn't that many with Gordon, I don't think, unless I'm, I missed a bunch that you might bring to my attention. 
The one thing I will say is the only thing that I think hinted that he wasn't going to make it is the fact that he was seemingly getting along with everyone so well, and he was generally in a very good place, and the throwing away of the notebooks at the end of the season, but those are all very subtle things. Those are not things that scream out to you that Gordon is going to die, but I think even, especially when you're watching this week to week, it definitely came as a major surprise to me. I think watching this in a binge, back to back to back, I think it's it's a lot less obvious, or it's a lot more obvious that he was going to he was going to die. Yeah, the other thing too is they started the season with this big birthday celebration. I'm like, well, they're celebrating his life, the the milestone of turning forty, and he's happy. And like you said, like everything in his life seems to be going really well. Uh, and I'm like, oh, the celebration of life at the beginning of the season is uh, a harsh turn for what to expect. So that I that caught me as something to to reaffirm my belief that he wasn't going to make it to the end of the season. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And the other prediction that you made is that Boz was officially going to adopt Cameron as his daughter. This did not happen, Kevin, but there is a moment in the show when he kind of affirms the idea that she is his surrogate daughter when they are at the courthouse and Boz is going to get married to Diane. And he basically, Cameron is one of the few people that is in attendance as a witness. And basically, they he calls her his daughter. And that is, that is not, so your, your prediction is not, your prediction is not correct, Kevin, but I feel like the spirit of your prediction was met. Yeah, you and I are on the same page with this. When that scene happened and he said, well, Diane has her daughter here, so I wanted my daughter here as well, I thought, I'll take it. It's not exactly what I predicted, but I feel like I I, I can take this as a minor victory nonetheless. I would agree. When, when she went to the courthouse, were you really? did you think that the adoption was going to happen? No, because I knew that would have been really weird to be like, I'm getting married today. And also while we're here, would you like to fill out this paperwork for this adoption to happen? No, I did not think that was going to take place. <laughs> would you like to fill out this paperwork? That's uh that's a good one. And um, so I, I think what is, what is so unique about this show is this show is not afraid of a time jump. And as we begin episode one, we, ha- we go through another one. We ended the season in probably the fall of 1990, and by the time we, we get into season one, we are in 1993, so we are almost a decade after the first season, and things are just moving so quickly, and the way that this season begins, I mean, it's just so artfully well done as we go through uh, what's going on with Gordon and Joe. They are getting along and pretty much get along for the entirety of the season. And I think that's a really cool thing, that these two characters who basically hated each other in season one, they are they, they are mostly getting along throughout the entirety of the first season. That's not to say that they don't have their little disputes and whatnot, but through Gordon's POV, uh, we see the passage of time as Cameron is working remotely and... Uh, she tells uh, Joe that he told Tom about what happened, and all of this is basically told through the POV of Gordon, and we see him uh, this great skipping through time as there's construction happening in the warehouse, and Cameron is apparently not doing what she's supposed to be doing. Uh, Gordon t- talking with Joe about the work as they address their personal relationship, 
We're kind of going back and forth upstairs. They're basically they're they're shooting this as they're trying to make it seem like it's one take, but of course they're using cuts. Um, we see employees, and it is it is really great. I love this opening montage. So do I. Uh, definitely one of my favorite parts of the of the season. I think it opens really strong. And I think a lot of what you'll see in this season is it's our final season. We need to do some things to to fast forward the story. And I think this was a great way to do it because not only are you seeing the growth of Joe and Gordon and their relationship with Cameron remote evolving, but you also see the evolution of the office through time. You see the evolution of hairstyles, outfits, things of that nature and where they end up. And like you said, like I do like the relationship with Gordon and Joe because this is really, I feel like, the first time they are truly equals. It isn't like in season one where Gordon's the creator and Joe's the salesman, and it's not like they're combative, they're on the same project, and it's not even like in season three when Gordon is kind of – Joe stole his idea and then later's having Gordon come onto a thing he's already created. They're both kind of starting from scratch with what will become – comment here so there this is like the first time they're true equals and true partners in something um and i think if you're going to do a little bit of a fast forward and catch us to get us to the 90s this is a fantastic way to do it and then throughout the episode we of course find out that it is gordon's 40th birthday which is a major milestone because he is basically dealing with a disease that has been determined to be terminal it is unknown when he is actually going to die of course but this is obviously a big deal, and he goes all out, and we'll talk about the party a little bit later on. But uh, Cameron has been working on a brand new game. This is a game that will come up very frequently throughout the season. Uh, the game is called Pilgrim, but it is not very popular, Kevin Ford, because Cameron is a woman, and she is bringing her female sensibilities to this game. And really, Kevin Ford, all boys want to do in 1993 is uh, rip people's spines out and uh, and kick people and punch people in games like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter. Well, that's true. I definitely loved going to a friend's and playing Mortal Kombat. I had a Super Nintendo. I did not have a Sega. And the Sega version of Mortal Kombat was way better than Super Nintendo, but I loved Street Fighter. And I think the like the big takeaway from her showing this game and stuff for me was just, I think, it showed a little bit of Cameron's stubbornness and also just the the issue with being a creative in a corporate world where they want this game to sell to as many people as possible. And if the kids who like the most popular games don't like it, then maybe it's not for them. And she's of the mindset of, well, the right people will find this and these aren't the right people. Um, and that's really been just sort of like a big overarching thing with just tech and the show in general is trying to find the right people, the right time the right partners, all these things trying to come into just the right way for it to work. And uh, I can understand Cameron's frustration as somebody who's just trying to find someone who gets it and likes it and all that. Uh, and she's just not getting it from these test groups. Certainly not. And I think one of the other themes of the series is that the these four individuals always seem to be slightly ahead of their time. And I think a game like Cameron has produced would probably find an audience in modern times, not necessarily in in these times. So it's just, uh, it's really, really unfortunate. And Joe has basically been downstairs for three years trying to figure out uh, the internet and trying to identify the ways 
uh, to capitalize on the potential popularity of the internet. As uh, by 1993, we are kind of in the early days of, uh, of being online. And uh, Gordon comes in at one point and says that he and Ryan were right talking about being a power company for the internet as their company has been able to find some level of success just by uh, by being a, kind of a facilitator, kind of being a middleman. And I think that's that's kind of been where Gordon has found a lot of his success is not by quite being at the top, but kind of being in the middle. And there's, uh, there's some disappointment on Joe's part because Joe definitely wants to be at the top and he wants to be the innovator of all innovators. I think, yeah, I think it's a really great way to show kind of where they are in their lives. And I think maybe part of Gordon's mortality has something to do with, I don't know if acceptance is the right word, but maybe it is where he's, he's happy to be really good at this one thing, but if it's not this big innovative, shiny thing, I think Joe's a little, not against it, but it's, it just doesn't spark him the way that other things do. And I think Cameron's really a, a big spark in his life that produces that ingenuity. And the fact that she's not around and not Talking to him, I think, is what keeps him in that basement and, and stubborn about his his creative vision. And I also like the very 90s Joe look like very Kurt Cobain with like the hair part and like the funky glasses. Uh, so I love seeing the evolution of just him physically. But it's it is interesting seeing those two different places of where where Gordon and, and Joe are. And the thing that really sticks with me a lot of this time is when Joe last season tells Ryan, is he, I don't know if I have that next in me. And I think you should know that. I wonder if that's true and Joe's trying to disprove that or he's just missing that creative spark to get to where that next thing is. And he doesn't want to settle on being good at this one thing like Gordon is happy to be. Well, and I think the implication is that Cameron has obviously had a great deal of influence over Joe and is uh, kind of a muse for him. And I think that is that's something that becomes clear as the season goes on and he is able uh, to find some of that motivation. Uh, let's talk about Donna, because I think when we talked in season one, Donna was the character that we rooted most for, right? I think that this is something that we generally agreed upon. But when we start season four and she is getting, uh, uh, she is hearing group pitches, um, she, she seems to be like this kind of this corporate overlord in a way. And it's a, it's a, it's a complete 180 from what we had seen in the past. And it's pretty remarkable to see what this show has been able to do. The fact that, you know, I don't think Gordon was ever somebody that we rooted against, but I very much feel that when we are, are in season four, I think Gordon is the character that we are kind of rooting the most for because he seems to have genuinely made a lot of improvements to his life and is is happy. He's making, he's getting along with everyone. He's really the only person that is seemingly getting along with the other major characters on this show. But Donna is not getting along with anyone. She's not talking to Cameron. She is talking with, with, with Gordon, obviously, because they have kids together, but their relationship seems to be a little bit strained. And of course, Donna and Joe are not, not, not ever really the best of friends. But uh, it was a little bit surprising to me to see just how much Donna has has changed. And I think this is represented in her costuming. I think that's a huge part of it. And even who she decides to make coitus with in this episode. That's right. Our, I was uh, I was taken aback to see our old pal Piz from the Veronica Mars universe here. 
and uh, falling to Donna's prey at at the at the dinner party in this episode as we see the new Donna there. So once again, Jerome, we have our 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 lines connecting one universe to the next. Here here Piz is connecting Veronica Mars's universe to uh, Halt and Catch Fire for us here. So that was nice of him. So what I think is really strange to me is that Piz is in the episode, but he doesn't get a speaking role. And I'm almost wondering if there are scenes on the cutting room floor of them actually exchanging dialogue and if that just got left because it's really strange to me. I he you know, he's not a name actor per se, but he is certainly someone that has been in other TV shows and movies. So it was just strange to me that he doesn't say anything. Yeah, I don't know if I was expecting or hoping to see more of him. Um, but I was definitely surprised it was like just the scene, no speaking, and that's it. I was kind of expecting for him to be like her boy toy or whatever, just the someone she can take home and you know, Cameron had her her coital interactions in season one. She said it sort of got her unstuck. Well, I think someone who is in the the corporate world who maybe is as uh, firm and not as personable as Donna has become needs her release. And maybe that's what I thought Piz is going to become, but just doesn't seem to be that way. But I'm both surprised and not from where Donna has come. It is surprising if you just go back and see where she was in season one to now. But I think because we've seen her have so many obstacles put in her way just through pure sexism, which aren't over just because of where she is right now, and the fact that she had that the way that mutiny fell out with her having to kick Cameron out and all this stuff, I feel like she thinks she needs to be no emotional connections to partners whatsoever because it just turns into a heartbreaker, makes things more difficult. Um I think she finds power in letting the people sort of uh, it's the power play of where you don't say anything and you let people really speak and speak and speak and speak until they sort of release their vulnerabilities or you see what they're really about. Um, so she's kind of learned the power plays. I think she doesn't want to get emotionally attached to any situation anymore. Um, I think she is smart enough to recognize a good idea from a bad idea and to see if the people behind it are there. But I also think she has very high expectations because she worked with such incredible people. Um, so I just think all of those experiences have melded her into this one really successful businesswoman. But as, as we see, it's ostracized her from, from her friends, from having any new friends. It feels like that interaction with Piz and stuff is like a very fake force kind of friendship thing at her at her home and she even mentions later that it keeps her up at night wondering if being this successful businesswoman has alienated her from her kids so again it, this is kind of where i expected donna to end up at the end of the season and it's where she is now is she successful in this but is she happy does she have people in her life to celebrate this success with and if you don't is it all worth it um i know i've kind of that's that's a lot to digest about what we just talked about, but that's, again, it was surprising, but also not surprising. Well, and I think this is represented by the fact that Joe, Cameron, Haley, and Joni are all at the celebration of life, and the one person that isn't is his ex-wife, and I know it's his ex-wife, but still, I mean, they still do have dinner once a week, there still is some involvement and they are able to be cordial with each other. But it's fascinating to me that Donna is not there and everybody else is. And who else is there? Kevin Ford, the Blue Man Group, which I didn't know that was a thing in 1993. Yeah, they formed a while ago. Um, 
because I because I did look this up. It was like they were just about forming at that time. I actually got to see them live in New York in 2002, and it was one heck of a show. So if you get the means, I think they actually got usurped by uh, Cirque du Soleil. Like they're part of that now. But if you get the chance to see them, I highly recommend it. It's a very interesting show. But to have the means to bring them to do a private show at your home, that is uh, BDE, as the kids would say in 2021. Ah yes, the old uh, the old big dick energy. You gotta you gotta love it. Anyway, uh, let's get into kind of some of the things that happen at the party. We get to see Haley for the very first time as an older person. Uh, she is kind of sitting off by herself and uh, as Le- and leaves while Joni is exchanging Japanese with Cameron. So we see that Joni and Cameron still have a bit of a bond together. And we see that Haley is a little bit on the awkward side. She's very shy. She's very quiet. And uh, Kevin, I, I hope that after watching this season, you understand why I was pointing out the different Haley and Joni moments of the previous three seasons. That there was there was a purpose beyond just having these two random kids. That Haley does play a much more significant role in this season as a young adult. Yeah, until I saw the season, I was like, what's the point of all this kind of discussion, especially with Haley? Because we see Joni in some of season three, but like basically not, I don't think no Haley, but very, very little. And she becomes a big central point of season four here. So it's almost like a reintroduction to both of these characters because we do see a little bit of this current Joni in the end of season three, but it's only for a couple episodes after a time jump. So it's almost like this, especially for Haley, a reintroduction to these characters that sort of become the six and seven of the big five, especially Haley, who gets a huge prominent role in this. But I think this is a great scene to sort of set apart their personality differences. And you get that more fleshed out as the season goes by. But it's a great uh, like with Joni and all her friends and being more outspoken in the way she dresses and they're playing Mortal Kombat. And she's excited to see Cameron where Haley's more shy and sort of leaves the room. Uh, it becomes uncomfortable for her to be in that such a social way. So really good scene to sort of set off the differences and, and characteristics between the two of them. Not to mention just there's a lot of physical differences and hair color and things of that nature. So we get a, a pretty awkward conversation. There are a number of awkward conversations uh, that Joe and Cameron had. There are a number of awkward conversations that Joe and Cameron have throughout the season. And one of them takes place at the party where we learn that Tom has been promoted to head of development at Sega. And Kevin, all I can say is that sounds like a very good long-term position that will in no way come back to bite him. For some reason, I was reading your notes and I missed that they said that, that he was working for, for Sega now. Yeah, I really recommend the Console Wars book to learn about the, the Sega Super Nintendo stuff that was going on during this time. It's a fascinating book, and I think it's being developed as a show or movie or something, but the book is phenomenal. Uh, the documentary has already come out, and it is on CBS All Access, so if you can't or don't want to read, you can you can watch uh, Console Wars on CBS All Access. It's it's a it's a pretty lengthy book, but as someone who's like really interested in that, I, I, I thought it was very... But yeah, so, I mean, heck, at this time, being part of Sega is huge. Uh, and that would be a pretty good roll up until the early 2000s and whatnot. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, being in Japan and all that stuff, I mean, I think of it has to be very exciting, but obviously at odds with what, what uh, Cameron's doing. But it also is quite the dichotomy that's presented because we do find out that Tom has been promoted to head of development at Sega, 
But by the end of the fourth season, uh, we see that and, and with Donna and we see with some people there playing around with the PlayStation, the PlayStation, which would ultimately doom Sega. So it's just fascinating to me that we get this mention of Sega here. And then by the end, we see uh, the, the Sega's doom literally being tested out. Yeah, because I guess the PlayStation would have had to have been developed by then because I think it hits the market, at least in America, by 1995. And they're in about the 93, 94 time period here. So I like that it's it's true to that. Like it's following tech, obviously, with Internet and computers and things like that. But you get the scene last season with them playing the NES. Then you get the, season, the, the scenes here with the Sega and the Super Nintendo. You even get the arcade machine in the offices, which are not obsolete by this point, but are definitely becoming more retro and less common as as the years progress. And then you get the PlayStation here. And there's no mention of the Sega Saturn or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I do like that as sort of like a side thing. They're following video game technology, even though computer technology is the focus. And it is worth pointing out that in addition to video games being a focal point, alcohol is also a focal point of this party as both Cameron and Joni are are hungover. And poor Gordon is uh, is trying to manage both of them at first as uh, Gordon gets a very hungover camera to play some Mario Kart, the, the Super Nintendo version, not the amazing, incredible N64 version. Uh, we also get Gordon making uh, some business decisions, and uh, we get uh, a, a fun interaction between uh, Gordon and Donna that, uh, that happens in this first episode that you, you, you were very tickled about. Was that the one at the dinner? Uh, b- before the dinner when he sends his hungover daughter out to Donna. Right, because that seems like a very a very divorced parent thing to do, to let her have the fun at the birthday party and get drunk and then be like, okay, mom, she's hungover, your turn, see you later. I thought I, I thought that was a great power move from, from Gordon, whether intentional or not. Absolutely, and that conversation that you mentioned between Gordon and Donna, they talk about Joni not going to college, which is going to become important later, and also smelling pot. But I love the fact that, so we know that Gordon and Donna have, have smoked a lot of pot in their time. Not a lot of pot, but they've definitely done it on occasion. And they, they seem more annoyed than ap- ap- apocalyptic about it. And I think that is a, that is a very healthy parental response so I very much appreciated that and we also get Gordon uh, joking about Cameron having a thing for him joking about kind of something that I'm sure I'm sure that they may have gotten a studio note about maybe putting them together teasing some romantic tension I, I'm glad they alluded to that here and never never followed up on it though same and I do think their reaction to the pot and stuff is very appropriate and I think like Cameron nails it on the head later on when she says, like, she's all just doing this to try to get under your skin. So, like, don't don't let her don't let her win. And I think that's a lot to do with what Joni's this is her version of acting out is the the drinking, although it's I don't want to say it's encouraged, but it's at least not demonized by the parents. I don't know. Like, I'm not a parent, but I always thought it was weird. Like, even when I was in high school where I like hear about parents being like, well, if kids are going to get drunk, they may as well do it under my roof. I'm like, that seems like a weird thing to do. But I digress. Uh, at least it's their own kids they're doing it with and not other kids. Um, but I think their their responses are fairly natural and at least because it, they, they don't come off as being terribly hypocritical, especially when it comes, like you said, they, they, they smell the pot and they're not like terrified of it or anything. So again, just less of the, the demonizing of it, more, more uh, making it normal-ish in, in this world. 
So after a bit of a tiff between Joe and Cameron, uh, we get Joe and Gordon arguing next, and this leads to a, a very interesting scene with Gordon uh, going to the market research place and talking with Cameron kind of about disturbing Joe's life, and I, I guess Gordon is perceiving the fact that every time that Cameron uh, joins the party, so to speak, that Joe um, kind of either gets a new mentality of some sort or is uh, is is not staying focused on what he needs to be. And uh, this is what what makes this so fascinating to me is that a lot of the conversations that Gordon has uh, with people this season, and that includes Donna, Joe, and Cameron, they're 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 definitely there's a lot less hostility I feel like between Gordon and every character, and he he's, he has a baseline level of respect with everyone, and all of the arguments feel a lot less angsty this season, and that's something that I very much appreciated, and I think it's I think they're really trying to say something about Gordon as a person and as a character from where he was in season one, where he was very angsty and kind of a little bit pissy at times, but I think in this case, I think he's coming from much more of a position of strength and maturity. I do too, and I do wonder if it's the mortality thing humbling him, but I also get that same sense from Boz, where they both think about the future, but they're both very good at living in the now, and I don't know that any of the other three principal characters are really good at doing that. It's always, what's next? What's in the future? What's this? And a lot of them are very bad at just like looking at the picture of what's going on today and, and handling it in the best way possible. And I think that I think Gordon is like the fact that him and Don are able to still have their dinners to be connected to each other to catch up on their kids and just life in general and stuff speaks a lot to that. The fact that him and Gordon are getting along so well or I'm sorry that him and Joe are getting along so well at work. And even when camera comes to his birthday party and you know, he makes some snide comment about like, oh, so I see you see emails now. He's even like, you know, I'm not even really that mad. He lets Joe be the one who's mad at her. And obviously their history is far more sordid than his and hers. Uh, but the fact that he's able to let her crash at his home and then play Mario Kart and things like that, like he's got this way about him that makes him agreeable with everybody. And it's really hard to to hate him. Like even again, even if him and Donna couldn't work out as a married couple, they could still totally remain cordial and share share store swap stories about Joe and Cameron and whatever else and, uh, and still have their dinner. So I think it's great. I, we didn't need that extra drama. I think in this final season with, with Gore and everybody else Lee, it, it, it would have watered down the other drama we do see, but also I think it does show great character growth for him. Like, like you said, so we got the same group pitching to Donna as they had previously in the episode. And Gordon had mentioned the idea of indexing websites and uh, Donna steals this idea. So we get uh, another another kind of dick move from Donna as uh, she she had done some shenanigans with the with the internet the previous season and we are seeing that once again. And uh, the episode ends with Cameron and Joe on the phone as Cameron tells Joe that Tom has left her and that she is not going back to Japan. Dun dun dun. Yeah, that really throws a wrench in. Joe's life because Cameron was now romantically unavailable and distant in Japan. And now allegedly she's romantically available in terms of like, not emotionally, but not tied down to a husband anymore. Um, and so I think that throws a total, it throws everything in a disarray, changes everything for Joe. I listened to something with Carrie Bichet talking about uh, Donna in this episode. And she said, I think in her mind, 
because of like, you know, we have Joe talking about indexing the internet and then you have this separate group with this database software. It seems like when it's pitched to her and, you know, when, when this idea comes up in her mind, cause you can tell she's not excited or happy to steal it, but it seems like this is a nebulous idea of what's to come next. And it's not so much the idea that is the, is, uh, you know, the the intellectual property that is to be stolen, but it's who can execute it the best. So now it's basically her versus Joe and Gordon in who can now do this indexing thing better. But it's not so much stealing the idea as, again, her one guy came up with this idea, too, that just so happened to be something with Joe. So it's like this shared cosmic idea. And now it's who can execute it the best. That's at least her explanation for it. But obviously it's not like she didn't think about it when the guy brought it up, but she's just like, yeah, I think that's, I guess, I think that's what we just have to do. Um, and there's always that competition to market and things like that too, uh, as we'll see later on the season. Uh, but I thought that was a, a, a good enough explanation for me for not to make Donna seem like a total heartless person. But yeah, that ending with the bombshell of, I, I didn't, I did not think that Tom and, camera we're gonna make it anyway so i kind of am glad that it's just like by the end of episode one it's it's done and out of the way you didn't think those two crazy kids were gonna make it if they can't make it on this show kevin who can i think most everyone else can but you know what boz and diane they can make it boz and diane we're gonna get into boz and diane a little bit later on let's talk about episode two picks up right after the ending of episode one Cameron talks about the process of getting divorced from Japan and what a pain it is. I can't even imagine getting divorced in a foreign country and not having the internet. I, I That just seems like the worst thing in the world. And uh, Joe tells Cameron some of the things that have been going on in the world since Cameron has been in Japan. And uh, it's pretty funny to think of some of the some of the early 90s jokes that are going on. And uh, Kevin, it was, uh, it was the 90s were just a very different time. A lot less perilous, I think. I would say so. Uh, Not everything was terrible back then. At least from my very, you know, this is just nostalgia for being a 90s kid. But, you know, times are simpler then. I don't know if I talked to an adult from those times, they would agree. But I feel like, you know, at least talking to my parents and stuff. uh, Yeah, much simpler, much better, much more calm than than these days. And uh, can we blame the Internet? I feel like partially we can. I think we partially can, too. And it's funny that you say everything is terrible, given a line of dialogue that comes a little bit later on in this season. So Cameron and Joe are literally on the phone for the entire night, even though Cameron falls asleep. But Cameron wakes up and is still on the phone with Joe. And it is uh, it is the tea uh, that wakes her up. So uh, they are continuing to flirt over the phone uh, throughout the rest of the episode. But at one point, we do cut to Haley as Haley is uh, apparently ditching school and playing chess with herself. And at one point, Gordon talks about talks to her about kind of having an overbearing older sibling. And this is where I think you start to make the connections between Joni and Haley. Basically, the way I see Joni is, is that she is kind of, she is kind of what Donna was like as, as a child. And I think this gets more specifically alluded to later on in the season. But Haley is basically 
kind of a kind of a mini Gordon. At least that's the impression that I get. Maybe Haley is a little bit more on the sensitive side, and Haley also has some other things that that she is dealing with that we will that are revealed as the season goes on. Uh, but we see we we see this very sensitive side, but we also see how cerebral Haley is as well. Totally, and I you know we kind of get it driven home by the end of the season that Joni is more takes after her mother and Haley takes more after her father. And she's got that computer brain. She's got those smarts. And it is interesting too, that like both of them are kind of tired of school, but in very different ways because Joni shows no real, she's, she's at the end of her high school career and is wondering kind of what comes next. And the thought of going to college or whatever is not of interest to her. Meanwhile, you have Haley who's still in the midst of high school and she's already bored with it. Um, skipping school to play chess with herself. She gets much more enjoyment out of being in the offices with Gordon, working on her own website and things of that nature. So I like that there's this, these two differences in between them, but they're both, they're different in their own ways, but also very similar. And they, they, again, like the show does a really great job in laying out their differences throughout uh, the show's progression. So we do get a little bit of Boz in this episode. We also get, uh, some technical issues that Gordon is having at the company as the as MCI is not returning their calls and they are having a lot of problems and that's something that comes up throughout uh, the episode is Joe is not really available because Joe is of course uh, busy with Cameron and let's talk about Boz for a couple minutes here. Poor Boz, Kevin. I, I feel really bad for the guy. Uh, Boz at one point is making a pitch to Donna, and it's not going very well. And even later on in the episode, uh, Boz asks Gordon for money, not just any amount of money. He asks for about $300,000, which in 2021 20, money is probably like $3 billion, right? Um, and he also talks about not knowing what it's like. Uh, to be retired and just kind of the, the frustrations and not really knowing what to do with himself now that he has retired. So Boz is not doing very well, Kevin, and I am not happy about this. I think yeah, I, I think that's a very common position because I hear that from, you know, retired people is like, well, what, you know, people either don't retire later, one, because unfortunately a lot of people can't afford to retire early these days. But a lot of the time it's just like, okay, well, I retire, then what do I do? Some people have no problem retiring and they have grand plans or just the idea of relaxing and settling down is very enticing. Um, but for some people like Boz, it is sort of like that. Well, what do I do now? And I think it's, it probably doesn't help to have a wife who's still so actively working. Uh, cause then it's not that they can just go vacation for the rest of their lives while she's still working or whatever. Um, but he also has this bad investment he made that he's trying to re- to reconcile behind her back also trying to busy himself and he I think he misses his friends I think he misses the energy of being around people and all that as well so he's not no I don't think he's in like a horrible terrible place but there's got to be a a lot of times especially with this looming investment over his head where his headspace isn't so great and also let's get back to the Joe and Cameron conversation Uh, Joe reveals that his dad had died the previous spring so that would be the spring of 1992 and talks about not having a family despite being 45 and this is this is something that will become so what so let's get back to the Joe and Cameron conversation Joe reveals uh, that his father had died the previous spring and talks about not having a family despite being 45 and uh, this is going to be this is going to be a theme that comes up throughout uh, the rest of the season that Joe is kind of 
transitioning uh, to a bit of a different point in his life where maybe he is not so obsessed with the next big thing or trying to, you know, solve the solve the tech world, that he has other interests beyond just his work and perhaps is much becoming much more interested in the possibility of forming a, a, a or starting a family, perhaps even with Cameron as uh, they continue uh, their flirtation. But it is also in this episode, Kevin, where we meet uh, the brand new managing partner of the firm that Donna works at. Fittingly, his name is Trip, and boy, Trip is something else, isn't he? There's literally nothing likable about Trip. None of his jokes are funny. His face makes you look like I want to punch him. He just feels like this fake person who wants to be likable or whatever, but there's just, there's nothing good about him. And there's no point even in the series where I feel like he redeems himself. He's just that annoying pest of a, of a person that I think everyone has to deal with at one level of another in their life at, uh, at their jobs or what have you. But it's somebody who, for whatever reason, Diane wants to make the relationship between him and Donna work out and it's someone she's stuck with and trip sucks. That's, that's all there is to say. Diana, Diana is a very pragmatic person and Donna is much more of an emotional person. And I think that both of those things can have their, their flaws and their positives, but Diane is able to work with people a lot easier, I think. And she is able to work with a cipher, uh, like, like trip trip is the type of person who would be complaining about cancel culture. Trip is the type of person who would wonder why you cannot use the N-word in in the context of a corporate environment. That's that's the impression that I get from Trip. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um and I and I think you're you're spot on with the pragmatism versus emotionalness, and I think that's what makes them such a good team, uh, Diane and Donna. And Diane just has more years on her and more experience in the in in that corporate head position than Donna does. So I think there's still a lot for her to learn from Diane. And it's, and it's unfortunate that, um, sometimes you just have to suck it up and work with people you don't like. But, uh, I think that's the lesson Diane's trying to, to teach Donna for the, for the benefit of the the company, the project, whatever else, it's just the reality of life. Like I have to work with you, Jerome. And, uh, sometimes that's the worst. Yeah. I mean, I working with you is no great, no great pleasure either all the time. Believe me. It's it's better though. It's better now that wrestling isn't involved. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, we can we can agree on that. Amen to that, brother. Anyway, so Gordon brings Haley to his office after she ditches school, and uh, Haley takes all of uh, Joe's post-it notes and basically creates her own website and refers to it as Haley's comment. Brilliant! Just genius. It is, uh, it is a pretty fantastic moment and uh, a great way uh, to sort of end episode two as we pick up with episode three. We get Gordon yelling at Cameron for sleeping with Joe again, and then Gordon next yells at Joe. Gordon is very parental at the beginning of episode three, basically calling them out for, for their stupidity and for, for doing this, and uh, it's pretty great. I think he plays the role of the audience because we talk about how how bad they are for each other in so many parts of the season. We're just like, why are you doing this to yourselves? The one thing I do appreciate is I do appreciate the writers. We're going to get a little ahead of ourselves, but they do explore what a Joe and Cameron relationship is like, and it does not seem very pleasant. So I'm glad that the writers 
It's like, oh, you want Joe and Cameron together? Well, here's what it's like when Joe and Cameron are together. Are you happy now? No? Good. Let's break him up for good. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, not, not the most exciting or, or, or great lives they have together. So I, I guess that's that's a good way of putting it. They give the audience what they think they want, realize they don't, and then break them up for good. So the Haley stuff in this episode is just great. And I love... I love that Gordon and Joe are literally in the middle of an argument and Joe is at the computer and he starts ignoring Gordon and he sees what Haley has created and just asks, what's this? That is, that is a, that is one of my, one of my favorite small moments from this season is just literally just arguing about Cameron and Joe is just so hyper-focused on what's next and the future that he sees this and is just, he's more curious about this than arguing with Gordon. It's an absolutely perfect encapsulation of their thing. And I think for Joe, it's not only is he not focused on it, but it's also just like a great out for this argument that's going to go where exactly, you know, like there's no end to this. So you may as well just move on to this. Uh, this what is what is Gordon called? Does he say it's rad to Haley, her website, this rad thing in front of him? Yeah, he definitely uh, he definitely says that term and. Keep it up with the 90s theme, at least. I'm just disappointed that with this 90s theme, nobody got slimed. The slime is expensive to, for, for the offices, you know? I mean, they got a surfboard. I guess I guess the surfboard is cheaper than slime. S- slime also, I, I more associate with you can't do that on television than anything, and that's a Canadian property, so nowhere near California. I mean, but I feel like Nickelodeon has co-opted that. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, especially in... With other like the Kids Choice Awards and stuff, but uh, what are we what are we even talking about here, Jerome? I mean, literally, there was a football game that aired on Nickelodeon, and everybody wanted to just see someone get slimed. That's what I know. So that's how ubiquitous I think sliming is associated with Nickelodeon at this point. But I digress. Let's get back. Let's focus as we get more interactions between Donna and Trip. Let's just, let's just let's just agree that Trip is a terrible person and. Let's not address these conversations very much unless they directly apply to the plot, which they really don't. But Trip is just terrible, and we can we can basically just ignore him for the rest of the season. How about that? Exactly. I'm I'm, I'm on board with this plan. All right. So Gordon and Joe sell their company, and then they want to bring Haley into their brand new project. And <laughs> uh, Gordon at one point offers his daughter a low amount of money. And Joe, of all people, asks, you want to lowball your own daughter? And Joe offers her 20 grand, and Joe and Gordon then go outside and negotiate how they're going to handle this, and they agree uh, that they are going to create a trust fund for Haley. But I, I love this scene so much, because as much as Gordon is in the right most of the time in this specific scene, it's very clear that Joe is actually the one who is not just being pragmatic, but he is also seeing the potential of this and also uh, seeing the value of work and that uh, Haley deserves to be compensated fairly. Right. Well, it's also just the difference of him. It, Gordon has to be the dad here. Well, Joe can just be the, the pie in the sky, treat it like a real business relationship where Gordon has to be like the I'm talking to my daughter who is still a high schooler. What can we really do for her right now? And she kind of gets the best of both worlds because not only does she get the trust fund, but she she gets to count working at what becomes Comet as her high school like internship credit or whatever. So she gets to get out of school for a semester or whatever to to work there, which she's already skipping class. So might as well make it official for for a grade. Right. 
Um, but yes, the dynamic between Joe and Gordon here was phenomenal. Really funny stuff. It's uh, it's pretty great, and we'll get back to some of the uh, the Haley stuff a little bit later. But let's talk about what Cameron is doing. Cameron is at a conference, and uh, she is on a panel and calls it Doom boring and a slot machine, which is uh, which is uh, which is a heavy shot. She also throws Donna under the bus with Donna standing in the back. And at one point, Donna even asks her a question, and Cameron calls the business side of this these endeavors parasitic, which is something that we'll come back to. We'll come back in these conversations a little bit later as Donna and Cameron try to mend their relationship. But that is a very strong term, and uh, Cameron is not incorrect. I think when when she when she kind of sees what gaming is becoming and is uh, clearly becoming a little bit disenchanted with what she's seeing between Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter, and Doom. And it seems like gaming still is a slot machine, especially when you have these these freemium games that are on, on your phones and whatnot. So, again, this is a case of the writers kind of reading the room and, and doing a very good job of kind of writing these characters and writing about gaming in a contemporary way uh, through the lens of the 1990s. So that is, uh, that's something that I appreciated. Yeah, games have just updated now to figure out a different way to, to fleece their fans out of their money over and over again. I actually did a, a, a paper about it, whether it's gambling or these other awful things with it, with gaming that need to be regulated. But in this time, it's all about quarters or, you know, online services or whatever else with games. And I think her comment about being parasitic hurts Donna in a way, because I think she, she feels as personal attack, but I think there's also part of her that realizes it's true. Um, and whether that's the way that she wants to conduct business or not, I think that's just the nature of business. It's it's the video game business, not the video game friendship, so to speak. But I do think she has regrets about the way things ended with Mutiny and Cameron has not let those go. Um, and I think just she didn't have to go to this panel and ask a question, but she did. And she put herself in the spot and Cameron took the opportunity. So it is what it is. Um and I think it's it's a great scene to show where they are at in their relationship with one another. For sure. So also with Cameron, uh, a copy of her game was sent to someone at Electronic Gaming Monthly. And there's it's it's funny that this happened. I don't know when this happened, when this uh, when this season aired in relation to uh, GamerGate and some of the some of the issues relating to that. But I found it really fascinating given kind of where review culture is, and I know there was some discussion about review culture after the recent Cyberpunk game came out. Um, not that I'm I'm not a video game expert, but I find it really interesting whenever people talk about the idea of reviewing games, and in this case, this the, a review like this in Electronic Gaming Monthly at a time when there are not a lot of video game review outlets it does a lot of damage, and basically it is because of this review and because I think the perception of the game isn't very good anyway through some of the test marketing that Atari decides to hold back on the game of Pilgrim, and uh, this leaves Cameron in a kind of a, kind of a bad place. And it, it, this, this leads to Cameron talking about the review and, and what the company is going to end up doing to her game and basically robbing the game of its soul. And we once again have Cameron. Cameron has something taken away from her that she created. So Gamergate was years before this came out, but not like too far in the past. It was like summer 2014 into 2015 is when a lot of that stuff kind of began. 
But I don't know that I necessarily see a direct correlation. I think for Cameron, it was you're focus testing the wrong people. If I send my game to gamer people, they will get it and like it. And it turns out that's not true. And that hurts. And it was a risk and it backfired. And now she's kind of lost because now it's like, well, this thing I thought was great. People aren't getting it. And uh, fortunately, someone does get it later. But uh, that sucks. I mean, that's that's a lot of what a lot of these projects are. Do you work on this thing and you a lot of what the show is, is these projects and products that these people are working on. They're not just products to sell or shop around. They're a big part of them. That's what Mutiny was for her. That's what her games were when she worked at Atari. And that's what Pilgrim is now. And to have someone review your game, it's hard. You, It's so hard for someone like her, I imagine, to separate it and not take it personally because it is such a part of who you are and what you're and, and your time and your energy and all these resources you put into it and for someone to say that it's not good. It sucks. And it, and it, you, it's impossible, I think, to separate it from, uh, from your art, from yourself and not take it personally. And that's just, that's unfortunately the nature of her working for these companies and things like that is if, if people aren't going to like your product or they don't get it, what else are you supposed to do as a corporation, you know? Where was the scene of Cameron going on Twitter and calling anybody who reviews her games virgin dwe- uh, basement-dwelling virgins? Where was that scene? See, I thought you were going to go with the, um, the Jay and Saw Bob, like, all you MFers are going to pay. Uh, you know, you, we, you are the ones who are the ball lickers. Look, there are many parts of Jay and Silent Bob that have aged very, very poorly. But as I think we've discussed before, the ending scene of them going to people's houses and kicking their ass will never not be funny. Never. Never not hilarious. Uh, also, who is Atari to tell anyone that their game is bad? I'm sorry, man, but I, look, I, and again, I know nothing about video games, but I do know that there was a garbage dump full of E.T. video games that exists in this world. That's true. And I don't know. I don't remember if that was either the game was bad. They were overproduced or both. But I think at this point, Atari had phased out of making consoles and just stuck to being a game producer thing. Uh, and in a, again, in a crowded market where home consoles are big and arcade games are big, you want to make sure you have that that hit, I suppose. And uh, her kooky artistic thing is just like you said, too ahead of its time, maybe as a PC home game. It'll be great in a few years to explore this open world thing. But right now it's about uh, beating people up or being a platformer right now. And that's uh, that's what's selling. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics in this episode as Joe and Haley are, are kind of having a budding relationship. And again, this is something that goes back to the first season. And Kevin, I, I hope that you realize that all the conversations that we've been having the last three seasons are kind of paying off. Because remember, we talked specifically about Joe and the way that he was able to relate to both Joni and Haley. With that in mind, we see kind of their relationship. But Gordon is is a little bit apprehensive because he knows how hard Joe can push. And I think he's a little bit concerned about Haley because she is emotionally sensitive. And it's not because she's a girl, but because Haley is does strike me as being emotionally sensitive, a lot more so uh, than even Joni, and we'll talk about Joni in a minute. But I really like that dynamic that Gordon is very concerned about his daughter because he knows just who Joe, he knows the type of person that Joe is. So I, I really appreciated that this history of their relationship is all coming to, is, is paying off in very interesting ways. 
Joe and Haley. Yeah. Like, and I, what I really like about all this relationship stuff with Joe and Haley is it goes back to season one when he's at the, um, Donna and Gordon's household when Gordon isn't home yet. And he's doing great with the kids. And at the time you're kind of thinking like, is he, is he good with kids or is he being good with kids? Cause he wants Donna to be on his good side so that she'll endorse and take his side, not take his side, but she'll think well of him, which might've encouraged Gordon to more go along with his, his stuff at work. But now it just turns out he's really good with kids and him and Haley have this, have this connection and it's, and she, I feel like she feels like she can be more open in herself around Joe than her own father for obvious reasons. And it lets Joe see a side of her that Gordon just, just can't as being her father. All right. Let's talk about one of the most awkward scenes in the history of the show. As, as Donna is being very hard on the people at Rover. And there is even a point when Diane basically tells Donna to stop being a bitch. That's basically the, the subtext of what she is saying. So Donna decides that she is going to have this wild party at her house with booze and food and all this business. And what happens, Kevin? She accidentally reveals that one of the people working for Rover is pregnant while she is offering alcohol and makes a joke about the only way that you can't drink this is if you're pregnant. So uh, Donna is just being a very awkward human being. And Joni comes in, says her dad is being a dick, and decides that she is going to stay at Donna's. Clearly, Joni has figured out this whole divorce parent thing and is uh, taking advantage of it wherever she can. This scene is just so cringy. And it's, uh, it's again, a representation of kind of uh, how far Donna has fallen, at least from a humanity standpoint. It's that, and it's also, like, as I would, like, just thinking about, like, if my boss was trying to become, like, more, like, friendly and laid back, I'd hate it. I'd be like, why are we doing this? Like, we don't have to be, like, no, you shouldn't be mean to your people at work. I get it. But at the same time, like, we don't have to be friends. You don't have to invite us over for dinner and, like, we get personal with each other. Like, that to me is just always awkward, no matter the circumstances. If it happens naturally or organically, great. But to have, like, this dinner where it's like, no, we need to have fun and let our hair down and not talk about work rarely ever works, I don't think. And I think especially forcing people to drink to let their hair down is just even worse. Like, this would not fly at all today even in the privacy of someone's home to like try to push alcohol on people like that pregnant or not god bless donna she's trying she's trying to be more humane with her people but she just doesn't know how and it's not going her way and Joni does not make things better but her her barging in is definitely i think a welcome way to break the awkwardness and kind of change the 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 temperature of the room as uh, as Cameron is playing a game at the warehouse, we see Gordon walking in and they, uh, they have a very interesting conversation uh, together as uh, they, uh, they start playing doom together. So even though it's a slot machine, Cameron is still very much able to get into the game, thus proving uh, she's kind of a hypocrite, as we all are with, uh, with with stuff like this. Like, sometimes you'll criticize something all the hell, and then you'll somehow get into it, because at, at the end of the day, Kevin, we're all basic uh, to a certain extent. Uh, Cameron and Gordon do have something in common, being divorced, so they talk about this idea of being divorced, and Gordon talks about being jealous of Haley and Joe discovering a new project, and... Like, figuring out at this point in his life what he's going to do with himself now that he's turned 40 and his both of his daughters are growing up very quickly. And 
Cameron basically implies that Haley is not going to turn into her. And Gordon, in a very touching moment, one of the mo- uh, one of the touching moments of the series, Gordon says it wouldn't be so bad if Haley turned out to be Cameron. And that and that feels like a really important moment just because these two started off by not getting along. And I think for Gordon to say that, I think says a lot. Yeah, it does say a lot. I'm so glad he said it. And I think he was earnest when he said it. And I like that there's there's several scenes where throughout the series of the show where it's them two playing video games, having fun, decompressing. And then when they've sort of decompressed, they can have more honest, vulnerable conversations with each other. Happens over Mario and Duck Hunt, happens with Mario Kart, and now it's happening again with Doom. And I think with Cameron, she just didn't want to – because it's successful, she didn't want to like it or she didn't want to admit it was good, especially when she's having her own issues with her own game. But at the end of the day, it seems like it's a fun thing that she truly does enjoy. And uh, I think with Gordon, it's safe to play it and admit that. And I do like that it helps lead them the conversation. Now they do have this newfound um, similarity with the divorces and Gordon's able to give her perspective. And as you can see from Gordon, he's thriving. He's doing awesome, I think, in the divorce. Like things seem to be okay with his kids. He has a still a, a decent relationship with Donna. There's not... You know, they aren't constantly at each other's throats or what have you. So uh, I think his perspective is great. And I think, like you said, that line about, you know, if his girls turned out like her, uh, he would be happy about it. All all, all of that, I think, is putting Cameron in a pretty good headspace uh, at this time. Is he thinks she's turned out to be a, a good person and that life after divorce uh, isn't so bad or it doesn't have to be so bad. So we do get Gordon making a deal with his daughter Haley about what to do with Comet moving forward. And uh, the episode ends with uh, Donna telling Gordon about the web project and Gordon coming back by saying it's Haley's website. Great way to really stick the knife in there and really go after his wife like that. That was I very much appreciated that because Donna Dinas, Donna is very much in the wrong here, and uh, and her the look on her face when she realizes that her daughter has involvement in this new project is uh, is pretty great. Right, because Donna seems like she's become the person where it's not personal, it's business. That all kind of goes out the window when it's your kid. Yeah, if it's your husband or Joe, sure, whatever. But if it's your kid, like, how do you how do you explain that to Haley when she comes over as a 14-year-old who just wants to eat pot stickers or, or bagel bites? Well, it's not it's not personal. It's just business. Doesn't doesn't really work that same way. It also made me laugh when <laughs> she was like, when are you going to tell me that this was Haley's thing? And he's like, now, literally right now, I was going to tell you a uh, really, really funny scene with the two of them. But uh, yeah, that definitely throws uh, Donna for a loop. As we go into episode four, we get Joe and Gordon evaluating Rover. They seem very unimpressed as Cameron is working on her motorbike. I don't know if that is kind of a transfer thing from Japan because I know motorbikes are very popular in a lot of southeastern countries. But I found that to be very interesting. Uh, Joe and Gordon are so unimpressed with Rover, they give it a C-. Cameron gives Rover a B-, which is a higher grade than Joe and Gordon. And Joe, at this point, seemingly is able to convince Cameron to work for them, as Cameron is still kind of figuring out what she wants to do uh, with herself. And uh, I, I really like the fact that, that we have these three together once again, kind of how Season 3 ended they were together throughout season one, and here they are once again together working on a project. Well, so I think the bike thing I took away is this was maybe she didn't have a bike in Japan, but remember she 
lost the opportunity to get her dad's motorcycle last season. So this is maybe her trying to make up for it or take up the hobby in, in, in his spirit, so to speak. But I also think it's the same thing with her in Doom where it's it's Joe and Gordon's competitor. So they're going to nitpick the hell out of it. And as somebody who's objective, Cameron can go in there and be like, guys, this isn't as bad as you as you think it is. And they just don't want to admit it to themselves. Uh, but, yeah, working with working with them again. Um, I think that's that was probably a natural progression of things to come. So a lot of this episode, it is it seems to be very focused on uh, what's going on with Donna and Rover. Uh, so we'll get to that in a minute. Let's just address very quickly kind of the other things that happen at at Comet. Let's talk about the fact that we, we get the debut of Anna Chlumsky as Katie. Uh, she interviews for a position at Comet, and she's very quirky and basically seems to be flirting with Gordon right away, and there seems to be some sort of a connection, but it is worth noting that I, I think this kind of gets lost is the kind of people they're looking for, not necessarily tech people, but more experts in the field, so to speak, uh, to help organize comment because they don't want to just use an algorithm. The way that they want to organize comment as a search engine is to have experts creating uh, these search fields so that it feels more authentic and real. So Katie is meant to kind of fill that position. I believe she's actually a doctor even uh, because Haley is able to kind of handle comedy and that sort of thing, which I wish we had explored that more. Like I want, I want Haley's hot takes on, on the latest, uh, on the latest uh, Richard Pryor special. That's, that's kind of what I was hoping for. I would have loved that too, for her to get more deep into her comedy fandom. Cause I think that's something her and Gordon would have definitely bonded over. Just listen to like some, some prior records, maybe some Eddie Murphy or George Carlin records going on. Maybe she discovers this new guy, Adam Sandler, who just put out his first record or something along those lines. Or even just them like staying up late to watch SNL over a bowl of popcorn and some soda or something. Uh, but I digress. I love Anna um, being an addition to this. I think she's awesome in her role. And like you said, she's not a tech person. I think she me- they mentioned she like worked in libraries as an indexer and stuff. Um, and not only is she great at indexing things when they're throwing questions to her about like how would you – classify barks and she talks about all that kind of stuff but even going through the staff and like this is what this person works on this is what this person works on yada yada and she's thinking about well maybe we can combine those two things or this and that so indexing even the the people the resources of comet seems to be something that she's going to be able to be good at so wonderful late addition to the show i feel like we don't get to see a ton of katie in the rest of the season but when we do see her and gordon together it's it's a great fit uh, and I, I think maybe it's just because we really like seeing gordon happy with somebody or just happy in general uh, but she adds a really good energy to combat that i think is very much needed amongst all the other people who their brains are too deep into tech to really see out of it i think and she isn't that way and i think that's a really great person to have in any industry as someone who isn't just too deep in the woods on whatever it is you're working on to be able to see the bigger picture or present a different philosophy or counterpoint or what have you is so valuable. I think that's what Katie can bring to the company. Absolutely. And later on in the episode, we get Haley's team winning a weekly indexing contest. And because it's 1993, she does not get to slime her father, but she does get to throw a pie in her father's face. And uh, it is, uh, it's one of the best scenes as far as, as just pure joy, which you don't often get with the show. But they, uh, they took kind of the most troped 
cliched piece of comedy and and turn it into something endearing with a pie in the face. I really enjoyed this scene. So did I. And I, and what I also liked about it too is you really get to see like Haley feels like this is part of her element because Gordon I think is concerned that she isn't doesn't have a ton of friends her age and things like that. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Joni does. But that the Haley's comfort zone is she's more like a young adult herself. She's very mature for her age. So I think it makes sense for her to be in this environment where she's doing something she's good at with the website stuff, but also being around people who are older than her almost is, it puts her more at comfort than even people her own age. So the scene does a lot and, and seeing her really happy and her father really happy, just, it is a feel good moment. Like you said, you don't get a lot of those and we get another feel good moment with them a little bit later that I, that I really enjoyed. But yeah, this was, this was awesome. So let's talk about what's going on at Rover. Rover and Comet are now very much in competition with each other. So the the volume is being turned up, so to speak. And Boz and Tanya, Tanya was Donna's assistant, and now she has kind of gotten a promotion. I think it's really great that Tanya did get a promotion, but we really don't get to explore her character very much at all. And again, I think the fact that there are very few colors, or there are very few people of color on the show, and to have Tanya here is good, but to not have it explored, I think is kind of a lost opportunity. And I, I, I just think it's unfortunate. And they don't really mention the, a potential racial dynamic between Boz and Tanya because that's really not what the show is. But that, that definitely was something that I was thinking about as I was watching this, as you have kind of this older white male and uh, a young black woman kind of trying to work things out and figure things out. Donna is telling them kind of multiple times throughout that they need to get along and that they need to kind of come in to put a, put up a united front. And Boz very clearly has his interests in uh, solving his financial problems. And Tanya seemingly is the one that wants to help build Rover up and have it to uh, be a successful company as they're looking for a very specific grant, the Series A grant, which I quite frankly don't know very, I know very, very little about. But this is a problem that kind of extends... Uh, throughout the rest of the episode and it's uh it's just it's really unfortunate and donna is is also uh feeling the stress as uh she's uh she's starting to drink a lot of booze and typically she has a girl's night out uh with Joni and Haley, but she's drinking a lot of booze and uh wants a girl's night in in girl's night in instead so I, I just wanted to point out that, uh, that Donna's drinking is starting to become an issue as are Boz and Tanya's uh, relationship, too. I can't think of many scenes outside of work where Donna does not have a glass of wine. And I think that is very purposeful. Like there's, you know, her picking up her kids from Gordon's house. She doesn't. But like pretty much any time she's at home, if she's at her computer watching television at dinner, whatever always a glass of wine by her side. So it's subtle, but noticeable. Uh, and you're slowly starting to see that become her, her vice of choice to handle the stresses, which I have to imagine is just overwhelming stress being in her position. And it is interesting seeing the, the characteristics of Boz and uh, like who is there to make money, but also Donna's assistant. This is her very first role in a leadership position. So she wants to do well to prove Donna right that she is able to handle these sort of things. So yeah, everyone's everyone's dealing with stress and handling it in different ways or not handling it in different ways. Uh, and as you see uh, with Donna, like 
the work and the drinking and all this stuff is affecting her relationship with Haley, who at the same time is growing more closer to her father through work. So it is just a really interesting dynamic, all these things going on in, in her life. And Robert definitely don't seem as, as cheery and, and fun as they do over at Comet. So Cameron is also a little bit lost at this point uh, in the episode, and uh, both literally and figuratively, as she is having trouble with her bike kind of in the middle of nowhere, a bike that she is seemingly repairing and trying to work on. But it breaks down, and uh, Cameron just happens to find at the spot where her bike broke down, this wonderful new piece of land, and she eventually looks at buying an RV, and to celebrate, she makes up with Joe and tells them, uh, tells him to, uh, to to kind of entertain uh, an offer of possibly even even selling the company. So uh, Cameron is, uh, is making some interesting moves, but unfortunately, Boz is still not doing very well as Boz visits Cameron, and I have to say, Kevin... We need to spend probably too much time on this, but let, can we dedicate an entire podcast to Boz's cowboy hat selection? Because it is exquisite. He does have pretty darn good taste in cowboy hats. Uh, I couldn't help but think when you're describing this, the Cameron's bike breaking down and her fixing it kind of feels like a metaphor for a lot of things in her life, does it not? I mean, it's it's not subtle. <laughs> and it's fine. It's okay that it's not. Like, sometimes I think a little sledgehammer to really emphasize things. I think it, I think it, I think it works. I think so too. And I, and I do kind of like her going into the trailer and living there. It feels like she's really trying to distance herself from a life that ultimately she just can't get away from. Yeah. I mean, she keeps getting kind of dragged back in, dragged back into things. And there is a point when they are celebrating Cameron's new land and, and Joe just falls asleep because he's old and tired, Kevin. He's 45, man. I'm just so tired. Uh, so we go back to Rover. Boz talks about uh, possibly selling Rover to AOL, and Tanya contradicts Boz in front of Donna. Donna calls it 101 bullshit. So there is a lot of unhappiness that is going on. Uh, Boz goes back to Cameron's place to fix the plumbing. Uh, Cameron, Cameron, <laughs> the level of frustration that Cameron feels with her plumbing, which, let me tell you, after uh, after what was going on in Memphis in in February... Uh, I was uh, I was very sympathetic to her her anger at the plumbing and water not working and literally being covered in shit. Well, so in some ways, yes, but you did not choose a life of living in a trailer where these things are bound to happen more often than a place with better indoor plumbing and piping situations. So I'd say it's a little bit different, but I think Cameron didn't really think out what it really truly means to live in a trailer. And I think the idea was more romantic in her head than the reality of the situation. So as Boz is fixing Cameron's plumbing, he kind of bemoans what they don't have at Rover, which is Cameron and Cameron offers to help. Dun, dun, dun. And all of a sudden there's a sudden turnaround at Rover. They figure, figure out the algorithm. They get their series, a grant, uh, their series, a sheet, and all of a sudden, all of their problems are solved, Kevin Ford. Rover is on the move, and they're going to be doing well, basically because of Cam. And I love that Donna isn't stupid. She knows, without outright saying it, she keeps bringing it up to make things awkward and tense, but she knows that someone helped them. I, I thought she would have known for sure it was Cameron who helped them, um, but she just knows that something 
something is amiss for this to suddenly be fixed in a night is too good to be true. And she, uh, she smells collusion and she smells a real bad. She does. Donna, Donna's not stupid, even though she's dealing with her own problems. She is definitely not stupid. And I, I appreciate that. The show does not treat her as such. Joe and, uh, Joe and Gordon have a pretty honest conversation as Joe talks about hating the wilderness with where Cameron is. And I thought that was a, that was a pretty funny and honest moment because why the hell would Joe ever want to enjoy being out in the wilderness? Like, it's clearly established that Gordon likes being in the wilderness. We, he's talked about liking cam, camping a number of times, but Joe does not strike me as the type of person who uh, will shit in the woods. I don't, I don't think he's that. He's not going to. Where's Joe's monologue about how he hates the sun? I, I hate you so much, Kevin. Just, you are the worst. That is a joke for literally nobody but us. Yeah, that is uh, that is a very inside joke that I'm not going to explain because this podcast is going to be long enough. We also get Joe complaining to Cameron uh, about what happened at Rover, and Cameron looks like a deer in the headlights because she knows what she did, basically helping out the competition, and... Uh, this is something that is going to play a, a, a significant role in the next few episodes as as Cameron is torn between her loyalty to Boz, Boz being this father-like figure, but also, you know, the conflict that comes because Joe is her romantic partner. Even though things are not going very well, they still do genuinely seem to care about each other. And I think that's true even at the end of the series. I agree with all those points, and I think it's worth mentioning that for the 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 compromise with with Boz and Cameron is like I will help you with this but this is a one time fix I'm not coming to work for the company I'm not joining your team and this is it like there's no there's no other parts of this I'm going to do this for you and that's the end of it it's never the end of it of course but obviously it's supposed to be I'm going to fix this you don't name drop me you don't mention this because there's obviously it's at odds with their personal relationship, but it's risky for everybody involved. Uh, and I think, I, I think Boz did not think is this through as much as he should have. I think he thinks it would have been fixed. Uh, Donna would be happy and they can move on with their lives, but it doesn't exactly work out that way. So we come to episode five, which I would imagine was not an easy episode for Kevin to watch as um, Donna is very smart but her sm- intelligence crosses over into outright just being very smarmy and being a dick. And I, 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 obviously her rock bottom moment doesn't happen until the next episode. But I think from an emotional standpoint, this episode is Donna's rock bottom as far as what she literally, what she literally causes. Because she is so obsessed with the idea of finding out who came up with the algorithm. And I think we do understand that, yes, it is extremely important that they find out for legal reasons why they do, why they need to do this. And this is something that she even emphasizes in multiple meetings throughout as, uh, as, uh, as Tanya and Boz, you know, they're trying to, to, to cover for the situation. And Boz even has a, even has a conversation about, making sure that they keep their story straight. And it's just, it's really, really difficult. And this uh, this is not an easy episode to watch at times just because of just how insistent Donna is being and just the fact that she is, 
this it's almost becoming personal between her and Boz. Yeah, it it's definitely personal, and she can disguise it as well. We need the IP so we can run it through legal and all this other stuff. But that's not the real reason she's doing it. She she just knows that something's up, and she wants Boss to be honest with her. And he, she can see him sweating every time it gets brought up. So yes, we have the scene with Boz and Cecil discussing what they're going to do next. And Boz even, I think, tries to talk to Cameron. And they have an argument because Cameron says that it was a one-time thing. So Boz and Cameron have an argument, and this leads to the big dinner scene, this huge blow-up. As Donna is eating dinner with Boz and Diane, Diane leaves. Donna is Donna's not being a great person, and Boz asks Donna how much she has had to drink at one point, and there is this huge argument, this huge dispute about what's happened, and Boz gets up from the table, and Boz has a heart attack and ends up having to go to the hospital. And again, Donna kind of has this look on her face of just being mortified and horrified by what has happened, but this is the point when uh, when the receipts are, are starting to come through for Donna and the way that she is behaving, because clearly Boz is not totally in the right, but the way that Donna has approached this, after everything that she has been through with Boz, it's not great, and I think it's another representation of just this job bringing out the worst in her. Yeah, and I think this is the beginning like this plus what happens to Gordon, all that makes her realize is all of this animosity in the way of treating people worth it. Is it worth holding on to these grudges or pettiness or doing all these things? Like what if boss had died from that heart attack? How awful would she had felt about the way their relationship ended? And was it worth doing all this for something that ultimately in the long run doesn't matter? And I think there's some regrets about Gordon when he passes with her. And so I think, all this happening really it hits her hard that man, maybe I really do need to change. And is, is this all worth it? Is everything I have worth it? If everyone hates me. And I'm going to bring up the game now, just because it does play into what happens with Donna. And we get two people playing Cameron's game. One is Joni. Joni plays the game and is just thoroughly annoyed by it. Possibly because she's 18 and has no patience, but Donna sits down at the end of the episode and figures out a key aspect of what Cameron's game is, and it's really it's a it's a really interesting kind of beginning of sort of a, a reconciliation that is going to happen between Donna and Cameron. The fact that everybody has not been able to figure this game out, but Donna has. Again, it's not subtle what they're going for, but I think it works. Yeah, it's not subtle, but it definitely works. Like she's she's able to figure out Cameron and their artsy fartsy side and she gets it and that makes her a great partner for her whether whether they like it or not they they just happen to work well together they get each other all that stuff so yes not subtle but i like that it's not even just like one night she beats it but she's playing it progressively and she is enjoying what she's seeing and she breaks she gets the breakthrough when nobody else does and it's noticeable. It is noticeable that she has alcohol in each scene. So maybe alcohol is the key to solving the game. Maybe I like to think of it more as it's it's patience and understanding. Because like you said, Joni gets frustrated with her right away. The kids who in the test room played and don't get it right away. So maybe maybe Cameron takes patience and time to to really break through and and get with the program on on what what she's putting down and done. And maybe a video game sometimes is about the friends you make along the way. 
maybe it is that. But Donna, for whatever reason, she's the one who's intrigued by it. She puts in the the time at home. Granted, she probably has a lot of time at home when she's alone with a, a bottle of wine and no kids, or even with kids who want nothing to do with her. Uh, so she's able to to do that, and that's her way to way to unwind, I suppose. So Gordon, we know is uh, is kind of a movie fan, and we get him watching a couple of movies here. Uh, at one point, he and Katie are uh, canoodling and uh, watching a bad movie. I could not identify this movie, Kevin. Could you? No, I could not either. Which you know, this is something that I would absolutely identify and and try to figure out. But later on, G- Gordon is watching Sneakers. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, Kevin. It is very underrated. It's got Robert Redford, Sidney Poitier, and Dan Aykroyd. It is a it's a very good heist thriller. I haven't seen it, but I know you're a man who loves his heists. I, I am a man who loves heists, and you can read more about my love for heists on EnterTheRealWorld.com, where I reviewed my 100 favorite movies, and there are a number of heist movies on that list. See how I did that, Kevin? See how so I just worked that in there? Well, and don't forget when we cover the uh, the train heist episode of Breaking Bad over on the Real Bad podcast. Absolutely. So you got to work those plugs in naturally, Kevin. That's how you got to do it. So we get Cameron and Joe discussing algorithmic searches in... Uh, Joe wants to bring in Cameron into consult, and uh, this ends up in a fight as Joe talks about being patient with Cameron, and Cameron with the great line of the idea of running a tab, which just Cameron's got some very acidic lines, and that was a that was a very good one. Yeah, ouch is all I could think. Just very very ouch line from her to Joe, but sometimes the the pain comes from a little bit of truth behind it. Absolutely. Uh, we do get a, a kind of a farewell to Tom as Tom knocks on Cameron's door and Cameron apologizes to him. Tom kind of no-sells and, uh, and walks away after saying um, they're having a child. So there's uh, things are a little bit awkward between Cameron and Tom, as, uh, as you would imagine. And I'm glad that we had this scene, but I'm also glad that it did not take up very much of, of the season because... In the end, Tom really was kind of a means to an end and kind of an obstruction more than a fully realized character. And I think it's a little bit unfortunate that this show did not get more of a run to really explore who Tom is as a character. But I'm glad that we had at least this little moment to where we could kind of satisfyingly end their storyline. Yeah, so am I. Because And, and I like that they had to... <laughs> He sent over the divorce papers in a box that got crushed by a truck, and so he had to come to America to present them in person. And it's it's as awkward as you'd expect, and I also think he wanted to give Cameron the benefit of letting her know in person that he and his new uh, whatever they are, girlfriend, fiance, wife, we don't know, uh, are having a baby, and obviously that takes her aback. Uh, and... I think he wants to give her the benefit, but it go- I think you're positioning this in like a way of like he's moved on with someone new. He's having a kid. He's moving to the suburbs of Japan with this new woman. And here Cameron is living out in the wilderness by herself in this trailer. Now, yes, there's a lot of stuff in her professional life that that is obviously going OK. And there's and there's stuff for and she's with Joe and things of that nature. But I think it's a really interesting way of showing the differences in their lives now post-divorce. And uh, I think that definitely only mentally messes with her. So we also get a great conversation between Gordon and Joe. Joe at one point says he doesn't even know what problem he's trying to solve. And there are a couple of Joe lines that feel very universal 
to our experiences currently in the world of 2021. I'm going to point them out. There's one of, there's a big one in episode eight, but Joe saying he doesn't even know what problem he's trying to solve. That feels very 2020, 2021, Kevin. That and also like which problem do you solve first? There's a lot of that going on too. Uh, Gordon and Joe talk about their 10 year relationship and Joe trying to figure out what comes next for him, what comes next for the world. And we get another great Gordon, this very endearing line where Gordon says that he's glad to have Joe there. Well, our relationship has been going for 10 plus years. You've never told me that. Well, I mean, that's with good reason, Kevin. <laughs> it's so mean. Staying in the podcast, too. I bet it. Yeah, I know it is. Uh, so while they're at the hospital, Cameron is very clearly uh, having some feelings of guilt. She did not. She does not know about. I, I would say that. I don't think that Boz necessarily had a heart attack because of any one argument because of the accumulation of stress. I think that's why. But Cameron is feeling very guilty, um, talking about being in a fight uh, with Boz. And there is a point when she and Cam- when he- she and Joe are in the car and Cameron says to pull over and actually admits uh, that she wrote the algorithm. So kind of all this drama kind of has a payoff. And it's understandable. I mean, given what happened to Boz... You can absolutely see why Cameron would have these feelings of guilt, especially not knowing what happened with Donna and Boz. Exactly. I, And you're right. I don't think there's any one event that led necessarily to his heart attack. It's probably just like an amalgamation of stress in his life with trying to keep the bad investment a secret. It's, I mean, that alone could have probably caused the heart attack, but it's the stress of what Donna's putting upon him and getting caught and putting Cameron in a bad spot. And I think it's really natural for people to take some guilt upon when something like this happens or or just even if it's not guilt, just feeling terrible about the way they left things with the person who's either passed or had a, or had a hard medical thing. And I don't think that's selfish. I just think that's very human to reflect on yourself. And again, it's the is it worth it? Was it? Was it really worth yelling at Boz about this is what Cameron's thinking? And, and that's what Donna's thinking, too, about. Same thing, but different. Um, and yeah, it, it's uh, uh, it's it's like we talk about with with Better Call Saul when this, but when Saul's brother dies and the one guy's like, "Oh, this is my fault." Yeah, when Chuck dies, and he and and Saul's just like, "Yep, it was your fault. You could feel that way." You're like, "Oh man, that's so terrible." When he's probably a lot of he has he has a ton of responsibility for Chuck's suicide. Uh, here's way different, but again, different shows, but sort of the same thing where you're taking a lot of this internal strife when someone passes or has a heart attack like that. And of course, uh, we get Gordon and Donna talking about kind of what's happening, what happened earlier in the night. And Gordon talks about Boz owing $300,000 and Donna didn't know. And that only increases the level of guilt that Donna uh, has for herself. We also get this great conversation between Joe, Joni, and Haley, uh, as Haley is very frustrated about what's happening um, with Comet. And Joni says that she actually likes Katie, and this is uh, in stark contrast to what happened at the end of season three, uh, when Joni was very unimpressed with the person uh, that Gordon was dating at that time. But in this case, Joni's a fan of Katie, and I like that they kind of come back to this. And the episode ends with Gordon throwing out the notebooks of where he was writing down his symptoms in a 
what is uh, supposed to be a very powerful moment because he seems to be doing very well and seems to be not as stressed in his life overall. And I think we've kind of seen that represented. So Kevin, it's only right that he throws out those notebooks and he's going to be, he's going to be fine now. Right. So there was part of me that thought like, okay, this is definitely a sign, but I also remember him um, talking to uh, Anna uh, Klumsky's character at some point, And she mentions like, have you noticed a pattern? And he's like, yeah, years ago I digitized everything and I tried to look for patterns and such. So, I think there is part of it that's symbolic, but also part of me is like, eh, maybe just because he digitized everything, you know? But yeah, that's not really how television and storytelling works, is it? Um, but I'm also glad that you, I forgot the comment that Joni made about not being a good fit for because I, I remember I said last season I thought it was just, well, nobody, nobody's going to be mom. No one's going to replace mom. And it's not really about that. So I'm glad they had this with Joni with her. Uh, approving of her and seeing as somebody who is worth her her father's value as opposed to just not anybody who isn't my mom isn't good enough for him. So yeah, I agree with you that it was great seeing that here as well. As we get into episode six, it starts with Joe and Cameron discussing comet names uh, and possibly uh, visiting Boz in the hospital. Uh, we get Gordon has gotten rockets for Haley on her birthday feelings on that kevin fun with rockets uh i think it's awesome i think it's very unique but also very fitting of Haley. it goes to show that like he's not just giving her like the stereotypical like kid birthday thing he's really put a lot of thought in trying to give her something she's really gonna love and it leads to one of my favorite scenes of the series so uh i'm all for it rockets for kids on their birthday that's badass Okay, so you mentioned this is one of your favorite scenes, so why don't you tell me what's, what's happening in the scene and why it's your favorite? Well, it's the scene where they're shooting off the rockets is what I'm talking about. Is that what the scene you were... Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, that's, that's what I was hoping you would get into, yes. Okay. okay, so yeah, so they go over to where Cameron's living. They have this wide open space, and it's, it's, uh, it's Katie, it's Gordon, it's Haley, it's Joe, and it's Cameron all shooting off this rocket. And it is one of those scenes like we talked about with Haley winning the competition and getting to pyre far in the face. It's this like whole scene that shows like this chosen family for all of them to be together because it's it's one thing for Joe and Cameron to show up at Gordon's 40th birthday. But to show up for Haley's birthday to help shoot off rockets goes to show like how deeply emotionally connected they are to one another, both their their families and everything else. You get to see Katie and Haley getting along, too, and just the fun and happiness they're all experiencing on this beautiful, sunny afternoon shooting off rockets. Just what a great feeling and just showing everybody together getting along. And again, Donna's missing. And uh, I think that's that's very telling. But the fact that all of them took the time to get together on this afternoon to shoot off rockets together really shows how much they care about each other. And the again, the chosen family they have all become. Yeah, a lot of fun with Rockets. Cameron talks about not dreaming in code anymore, which I think was uh, kind of an interesting moment. And I kind of want to get into the rest of the Joe, uh, the Joe Haley stuff, because there's, I think, one of the most important scenes of the show, one of my favorites, actually occurs later on in this episode as they go uh, to the restaurant. And we've mentioned the connection that exists between them. And Joe and Haley are talking about Comet and... Haley talks about the idea about being authentic online and presenting oneself, which is which makes a lot of sense and is a hint at what's to come as uh, the waitress at the restaurant comes by and there's some clear flirting going on and clearly Haley is not so subtly trying to tell Joe what the deal is, I think. 
and the look on Joe's face when he realizes what's going on, it's it's genuinely one of the most touching things that I've seen in this show and in any other show because I think he 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 really gets it. Like he really understands Haley in that moment even more so than Gordon does. And it's a really really touching scene. It really also pays off because we know that uh, that Joe is bisexual, and we know that he's had relations uh, with both men and women. So it's a, it's just a really great scene and a great representation of the Haley and Joe relationship. I agree. Yeah, I think him being bisexual is a big part of it. I think I don't know if Haley knows that outright, but I think it in whatever way, either conscious or subconscious, it makes her feel more comfortable with him in that respect, and it means that just. He is probably better at reading those signs than Gordon is. And I don't know that necessarily parents look for that more than a non-parent would either. So, yeah, it's a really great scene when he's asking when he's at the restaurant, sees this going down, asking her what she likes about the Internet. Just all those pieces coming together. He kind of gets that light bulb in his head and he sees what's going on. Um, And I love that it kind of carries over to that interaction with Gordon back in the office between him about you really know your daughter kind of thing. Uh. So yeah, lo- love any time that Joe and, and Haley are in a scene together. And we also get uh, some of the fallout from what has happened in previous episodes as Donna has to fire Cecil because of the algorithm incident. And it's uh, it's not a pleasant conversation uh, that takes place between them. And it's, uh, it's, it's just very awkward. She also has this incredible interaction with Joni uh, Joni says that she posed as Boz's granddaughter to get in to visit him, and that is the most Joni thing that I can think of. Yeah, that's a hundred percent the most Joni thing that could happen. We also get we also get uh, Donna doing a cartwheel, which was that was a, that was a still got it moment. I think when she does that cartwheel. Oh yeah, I think that's that's very human. Just like you talk about these old things, like can I can I still do it? And yes, yes, she can. But uh, she's uh, she's kind of talking about some of the bad things that. Uh, she has done in the past and kind of um, tr- maybe trying to make some peace with that. Uh, and unfortunately, the uh, the chickens are going to come home to roost later on. But Donna also has to give Gordon some bad news that Haley is failing two classes. And it's, uh, it's, it's this really sad and depressing moment because that means that Gordon has to tell uh, Haley about what's going on. And it leads to uh, kind of this big argument. And he pulls Haley in. Uh, to discuss uh, the grades, and she ends up throwing a milkshake against the wall of the office. And it's not quite pizza on the roof, but I couldn't help but think of, and make the connection there. Yeah, I could, that's a that's a really good point. And then him having to clean it later, and I just thought, like, I, they don't hire a cleaning staff for that office? I don't know. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's tough. Like, I, I think it's expected that she finds this outlet in Comet, and she puts... It's, and it's hers, you know, it's named after her title that she came up with and she pours all of her heart and soul to it and it, it hurts her grades and Gordon has to be the bad cop because he's her dad. And it's just dicey because it's both dad slash colleague and she ha- she's getting along so great with Joe and all the other co-workers and stuff that it's hard. I, I understand where she's coming from, especially someone who's bored with school or over it or doesn't connect with other kids and now she finds this finds this place where all the pieces come together and now it has to be temporarily taken away from her and it really sucks and it's and it's it's hard to watch uh not like overly hard to watch but it's hard to watch gordon having to do that having to play the bad guy we do get some happiness though as boz is in the garage 
and Diane and he have a uh, have a bit of a talk. And Diane proposes getting married, and Boz talks about how much debt he is actually in. And it's about time that they had this conversation. It is, it just, <laughs> they really just needed to talk, talk this out. And um, it's it's really great that, you know, these two are going to get married. It's a, it's the one romantic relationship on the show that actually works. It is, and I'm so glad he mentioned it here because I always, <laughs> I always laugh at my friend who, he married a doctor, and he says, like, when I... He's like, the day I married my wife, I went from having no student debt to like, you know, whatever six figure student debt she was in. And and that's true. When they get married, suddenly his debts are now hers, too. And so I think he understood just again, pragmatically, he had to come clean about all of this, both from the the standpoint of, oh, by the way, this debt is now going to be yours. But also, if we're going to go into this relationship, I have to come clean about this first. Like, we can't get married with this hangover head. So. Again, hard to see Boss finally having to bear a soul, but like you said, it it was time. I'm I'm glad that they finally got this out in the open. And then there is also uh, Donna has to try to bring in somebody to replace Cecil and to work on Rover, and she uh, she has a one night stand, and she, uh, she is meeting with someone named Bobby. Now, Bobby, I recognize the actor. He was actually on the uh, the HBO show The Deuce, uh, playing a bar a, a gay bartender, and. Um, He's very good in this uh, in this small role. He has a pretty good chemistry with Carrie Bechet, I, I would say. And at one point, um, he decides to turn Donna's offer down and asks why she hasn't tried to recreate community or mutiny. And Donna basically admits to, I think, him and to herself that it was the most fun uh, that she ever had. And Donna kind of tells her story and kind of her history. And Bobby decides to change his mind but then they sleep with each other, and uh, things uh, things get a little bit awkward the next day. <laughs> yeah, she's like, ah, I don't know about this working together thing anymore. Kind of a weird scene. I don't I don't know that I would have pegged him as someone that Donna would sleep with, but again, her headspace is a little bit all over the place, especially in the personal aspect. And I don't know where Piz is in her life right now, or how long ago this would have been where she slept with somebody. But again, they're at a bar drinking. Poor decisions get made, and uh, and here we are. Wait, you're saying that drinking in a bar leads to poor decisions? I don't think, I don't know if that's true. Hmm, I think you need more anecdotal evidence. I will not be going to a bar anytime soon. No? I think it's a bad idea. Just, uh, not, not, not great. Not great, Bob. Is there, is there a reason for that? Anything going on that I... You know, I'm gonna let you read a newspaper and I'll, I'll let you figure this one out on yourself. (laughs) LOL, a newspaper. I mean, that's where you get your most up-to-date information, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, let me go on my curb and my lawn and my robe and grab my newspaper. Like a Luddite. <laughs> you gonna check the weather in the newspaper too? Read the funny pages. Remember when movies were in theaters? Uh, I just got a, a notification the other day that uh, it was a year ago I saw 1917 in theaters, and that made me really sad. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not great. It's not great that we haven't been able to go to movie theaters in the last year, especially if 1917 is the last movie you ever see in a theater. Uh, Onward was actually the last movie I ever saw in the theater, but still. That's funny. It was mine, too. Yes, everything. Kevin and I have everything in common, apparently. Uh, anyway, I mean, Diane tells Donna to pay Cameron whatever Cameron wants to sign a release when it comes to Rover and the algorithm, and Trip is going to take over. We're, we're just going to bypass that. Uh, so Donna kind of gets an offer to be a world builder of her own as well without any VCs. 
uh, or interference. Uh, so there's also that. I, I'm sorry, that was Cameron. Cameron gets that offer. Uh, Donna actually has to drive out into the middle of nowhere. I'm not skipping over the DUI. I just want to talk about this first. Uh, she drives to the middle of nowhere to find Cameron. Things are clearly very awkward, as this is basically one of the rare times that they have uh, interacted uh, since the uh, since Season 3, Episode 7. And Cameron signs the documents, but passes on compensation. What an awkward conversation those two had. It was really awkward. You get to, like, Donna's all, like, dressed up in business, but, like, still, like, looks kind of like a mess. And, like, how does she, like, it's, it's, I think there's, like, this weird parallel where, like, Cameron's living in this trailer and dressed down, but is in, like, this just, like, even after all the Tom stuff, you feel like she's kind of in a better place emotionally than Donna, who's all, like, dressed up in a, like, successful but putting on appearances sort of thing. And you feel like Cameron probably wouldn't be the one to to be able to uh, say no to, to money, but it's not what it's about for her. And it, I think it's just a really interesting scene showing the differences in their lives right now uh, where they are emotionally. And earlier on in the, the episode, uh, Donna is clearly sauced in the afternoon and is repeating herself to Joni so things are not going well. And if you recall, season one, episode one, Donna has to go and bail Gordon out of jail after a DUI. And we come full circle as Donna is bellowing. She's bellowing Kevin Ford, gets a DUI after um, clearly being drunk and swerving on the road. And Gordon picks her up. Kevin, I'm going to let you describe the look on Gordon's face. (laughs) Well, first I want to mention that the song she's bellowing is We Belong Together by uh, Pat Benatar. And I mentioned that because like literally a day or two after this, this, I watched this episode, I was going, I was in my car and this song came on shuffle and I was like, that's pretty funny. I was, I was totally sober. I would like to point that out. Uh, but I let the song play. I did not skip. I was like, you know what? I'm going to live in this moment and, and think of, uh, think of Donna in this, in this moment. But, uh, we go back to season one, episode one near the beginning. Donna is picking up. Gordon for being drunk in public at the jailhouse. And now here's Gordon doing the same for Donna. Look at his face is just well, 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 how the turntables. I see what you did there. And uh, I I see what you did. I appreciate it tremendously. Uh, So there is that moment, but there's also Joe and Gordon talking about Haley. Gordon tells Joe to his face that will, he will never be a parent because Joe is basically telling Gordon that he doesn't fully understand his daughter. And Joe actually seems legitimately hurt by what Gordon has said. I mean, this is a stark contrast from, I think, sometimes they have their arguments and they could be a little petty and very stupid. But in that moment, you could actually see the hurt on Joe's face. So I think, you know, he's probably hurt for a couple reasons. One, I think he probably realizes there is some truth in what Gordon is saying. But I also think that it illuminates how badly he wants that in his life. Uh, and maybe it rings more true in this, in this heat of the moment with, with Gordon. But I also think it's interesting because Gordon makes a comment to Donna in the car after picking her up about like, you know, I don't think you've changed that much. Uh, and you're a good person. I like that person. While that's encouraging. It makes me kind of think like, is there part of Gordon that doesn't see people changing from who they are, that there is like, he, like there's, like, I mean, deep down inside. So maybe he sees that there's 
there are changes emotionally in Joe and all that. But maybe I, I think because of his experiences, he really doesn't think he's someone who is cut out to be a parent. Well, maybe Joe feels like he has changed and maybe he has gotten to that point. But maybe there is something in Gordon that kind of thinks that people who are like are who they are at their core, no matter what. And there is some inabilities to change over time. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too much into that. But I thought that that there was an interesting dynamic. And he mentions that to Donna about her being the same as she always was. And he liked that person. And then saying to, to Joe later, like, you'll never be someone who can be a parent. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think Gordon certainly has the way that he sees people, and I think he's trying to kind of maintain a more stress-free lifestyle, and maybe part of the conversation with Donna was just trying to reassure her in that moment that in that moment, the last thing that she needed was to be yelled at some more. So maybe there was there was part of that, but Joe does go on to say that he does want kids, and uh, another great line is, as Joe and Boz are having beers together, and I believe it's Boz that says, recognizing you're an asshole is half the battle. And that is a great line that uh, that should be put on a poster. Yeah, 100% it should be put on a poster. And maybe just like a, like on like a, like an index card, not an index card, but like, um, like a business card that you just pass out to people from time to time. And Kevin, I'm going to buy that poster for you for your birthday because, I don't know, maybe, maybe you need to recognize some things. Uh, yeah, I will get recognized right into the trash can. Wow. You would do that to one of my birthday presents? If it was that specific one, perhaps. Um, so... (laughs) The end of the episode, Gordon finally figures out why Haley actually likes the restaurant, and the gifts that I sent to Kevin to represent this were pretty funny. Do you want to describe them? Uh, I'll just say, if you've seen the movie Chasing Amy, you can take a a wild guess at some of the gifts that could have been, uh, that could have come from that movie at that uh, that represent the end of this episode and Gordon's realization as well. Gordon doesn't make the, the exact faces that Jason Lee makes, but there is a world, and I kind of like to think that he did. Yeah, and I do like that it comes together because the tattoos on the girl's chest match the symbol that she puts on her rocket that she uh, expressed that she likes so much. So yeah, it's a, it's episode six is great. Now we come to episode seven which uh, does not have the happiest of happy endings. and uh, there's, But there's a lot of Haley stuff to get into, as Haley gets herself a haircut and tells her father that Comet is no longer fun anymore, even though she is now passing her classes, and is, uh, is subtweeting her own father by putting the tests on the table so we can see that she is getting A's in her classes again. Um, Haley is basically trolling her father, and it's pretty great. Well, you know, in, in fairness to Gordon... She says, well, I got an A. I'd want to see the evidence, too. What am I supposed to do? Just take my 14 or 15-year-old daughter's word for it? Get out of here. Uh, but I do like that he finds it later. He got an A, and he's like, all right, touche, touche. Uh, but yeah, interesting that uh, it's not fun anymore to her, and she doesn't come back. And I think that that hurts Gordon that it doesn't that isn't fun for her anymore. We also get Cameron invited to the courthouse for the wedding of Boz and Diane. Boz basically calls her his daughter. We talked about this earlier. It is, uh, it is a fantastic moment. We don't actually see them getting married, of course, but the conversation that Boz and Cameron have is what is important in this moment because you, you kind of get the payoff after four seasons of them kind of having this very mentor-mentee relationship. This is the moment when Cameron basically becomes her surrogate. She becomes a surrogate daughter for Boz. 
right. This is where I'll take my little victory of uh, my my prediction. It's not exactly true, but it's close enough. And it's really sweet. It's a really nice moment between the two of them. And it sort of solidifies their relationship, everything that's been building since season one. And just I love we don't get it. We actually don't really get a ton of Boz and Cameron in in this final season. We get we get some we get enough. Uh, but this is definitely the the height of their relationship in the season, to be sure. We get Joe uh, watching a, kind of a video of people talking about the internet and actually saying that he is going to head out to see Cameron at the Airstream. So he is he's trying to inter- integrate himself into Cameron's life more, but things are just, they're not working out between the two of them very well. No, definitely feels a bit more forced than it should. And uh, we get Cameron working and Joe leaving and just a lot of conflict there. We get Gordon and Donna talking uh, and discussing kind of what's going on with Haley. And uh, Donna is actually going to rehab, just as we saw kind of Gordon going through his going through his rehab. Now Donna is going through hers, and she has officially been kicked off Rover. So she had a rock-bottom moment, and now she's got to kind of pick up the pieces, so to speak. Time to, time to go from the rock bottom to the people's elbow. Oof. I mean, just why? That, does, that doesn't make any sense, but I just felt like saying it. Why, why would you do that? Why? Because my brain is broken in a very specific way. <laughs> you have a very specific set of skills. Gordon, so we get a lot of Gordon talking about how Rover uh, is doubling what Comet is at this point because of the algorithm and because of kind of the reach that they have. And, um, you know, Gordon talks to Joe kind of about life and and the destination and you know there's a lot of discussion about a possible redesign and relaunch of Comet but um, it's I think it's very fitting that Gordon and Joe that their conversation is kind of the last one that Gordon has you mean a conversation about life and destination that's interesting yeah I mean it's almost like they were forecasting that Gordon was gonna die at the end of the episode almost almost Almost. So we get uh, we get Joe making a lot of good points about not trusting Donna as well, which is very fitting given everything that has happened. And, you know, at this point, again, it's fascinating to me that Joe was the most hated character of uh, this, the first season. But here he is in season four saying that you can't really trust Donna. And he's right. Yes. Again, the tables have they have turned the turntables, if you will. All right. So uh, we get Donna giving a president. A president, a present to Boz and Diane. Uh, things seem to be a lot better between Donna and Boz. Clearly, there have been other conversations that have taken place off screen. I would think to uh, to kind of um, mend things a little bit. And at this point, uh, we get a big moment as Diane talks about backing away from being managing partner to spend time with her new husband. Her new husband, who is a little bit older, and who knows how much time he's going to have to travel and whatnot. Again, not very subtle in what's going to be happening. Um, and decides to back Donna for potentially being managing partner. And um, I think it's noticeable that Donna turns down booze at one point. Yes. And I also think, yeah, it maybe there isn't much subtlety there, but I do appreciate that it's not just a foreshadowing thing like, oh, Boz is old. He just had a heart attack. And I think that makes, that would make any spouse evaluate things. And again, it's, all right, yeah, I'm working hard. I'm doing this, but. It, it kind of brings to light the mortality as a re- as a real thing, and it's just 
who knows if he's going to have another heart attack, if that one will be fatal or what have you. So let's make the best of the time we have together. So I think Diane's situation uh, and her decision makes a whole lot of sense. And I think Donna's proven herself. And I, and I like that, too, that even though that Diane's had her issues with some of Donna's management styles and this or that or the other, she still decides that she's the best person for this role. Absolutely. So I want to talk about Cameron and Alexa, which it's hard for me to really it was hard for me to get into this plot line. I actually completely forgot about Alexa. Like, I remember a lot about this show. There's some specifics that I certainly like I didn't remember everything, but Alexa is a character that I completely forgot. And I feel like there was a good reason for that. So I want to talk about the Cameron Alexa stuff just kind of right now. Everything that we want to say about it, let's just get it out now because it did not feel like a complete story. Alexa really did not feel like a complete character in a lot of ways. I think they were almost trying to position her as like the female equivalent of Joe in some ways, but the the storyline just did not work for me. Yeah, it felt like a really like kind of half-baked idea, but I, it just never... It it felt like it was like too late. It was something that I think was a bad idea to throw into the final season of the show. Uh, like it just didn't really lead to much. And it was like, is this something I really want as a fan to spend some time on when I know it's our final season and our time is limited here? I, I don't know. I think they, they felt like something extra needed to be done to drive Cameron back to Donna, I guess. But it just, I don't think it, it was a fully formed idea. I think it was sort of like this half idea that they throw in and never gets fully utilized the way it could. I agree. And speaking of limited time, let's get back into the Gordon and Joe conversation. Uh, Joe and Gordon talk about Haley and kind of what that all means. And uh, Joe was trying to advise Gordon about isolation and not letting her feel that she should be isolated. And there's an interesting line where... He, mentioning she took you to that restaurant uh didn't she and just what kind of that means and i think gordon is slowly coming to this realization about kind of the person that his daughter is and while this is going on there is uh broken electricity there's broken power and gordon is seemingly struggling with it again we're not being very subtle here but Gordon does end up fixing the power. He does end up fixing the air conditioning. And Gordon is very successful. And now he's going to be able to go on his date with Kate and be happy ever after, right? Yeah, 100%. That's what's, that's what's about to happen. Unfortunately, that is not what happens as uh, kind of we see Gordon. And we're going to go back and discuss the, the Joe and Donna conversation in a second, which is very important. But we see Gordon talking about the redesign and the relaunch and... Gordon says they'll get into it tomorrow, um, but unfortunately there is no tomorrow for Gordon as um, he kind of goes through time in this very weird, like just the way that it's shot, it's so different from the rest of the show, the way the lighting is done. It's not quite his life flashing before his eyes because he's not, I don't think he's necessarily seeing himself, but he's kind of going backwards through time and seeing Donna and the kids and just everything that's going on and it's not totally clear what has happened until we see Katie um, calling Donna to tell to very clearly tell Donna what happened but we don't even hear that the the only time that we hear 
the the phrase Gordon is dead or something to that effect is when Donna actually tells uh, Joe that. And I think that's really powerful. We don't, we never see Gordon's body. We don't see Katie's re- immediate reaction to it. And I think they really, they really handled this in a very sensitive and meaningful way. This is not the show where you're going to get a lot of gruesome violence or you're going to see a body. And I really appreciated that consistency that this show is such an emotional, like it's a car wreck at times of all these different emotions. But I think the way that they handled Gordon's death was not only very sensitive, but just very powerful. And I think it's almost more powerful that we did not see Gordon actually dying. Yeah, I I agree with that. It doesn't feel like the show. It doesn't feel like what we would see. Um, And what sucks is just like it's very true, I think, to brain health is, you know, I feel like Gordon's lucky that anything was even caught with his because it feels like for so many people – you don't catch it in time and just one day you have an aneurysm or something and it's over. And that's what happened with Gordon here. And it felt like just whatever he was doing with years before and keeping track of his symptoms and the medicine was all just sort of delaying the inevitable. But unfortunately that is true to life with a lot of brain health stuff is just, it's sudden and it's done like that. Uh, And I think they, while they gave you enough things to, build it up, it does still at the same time feel subtle because they didn't hammer you over the head with his brain stuff uh, way less than last season, especially. And it, it just, it really catches you off guard at the end of this episode that it's even coming. And it throws everyone's life into disarray for, for the rest of the season, especially the next episode. For sure. And, you know, it's because this is something that affects Joe, it affects Donna, it affects Cameron, it affects Boz on various levels and of course it also affects Haley and Joni because Haley and and Gordon did not really get to have any sort of resolution and I think that's something that is kind of missing from the rest of the season is that we don't really feel that we don't feel like there has been some sort of a lack of resolution and I feel like that is something that would come up but uh, while this is go- while this is going on we get a conversation uh, between between Joe and Donna as the two turntables have have a big conversation as Joe stops by to talk with her and Donna kind of blasts the company and Joe it's amazing to me that Joe calls Donna out for all of her crimes in California and Texas and again Joe is actually the one that is right it's just it's amazing to me what this show was able to do and to just completely turn the tables and to have this conversation where Donna's the one that's actually in the wrong, even though, even though Joe's kind of an asshole, everything that Joe says is absolutely true. And he is right to not trust Donna because Donna kicked Cameron out of her own company. And Joe also knows that she tried to kick him out of, of, um, of the internet company that they were trying to form at the end of season three. Right. And that's, I think she sees a lot of negativity in Joe and like being like this chaotic guy who entered their life and screwed it up. But the reality is, is there was a lot of good things he brought to them too. And there's a lot of her own negative things that maybe it's easier for her to pin on Joe or use him as an excuse or whatever. And Joe makes her face some of these things herself. So because you you really get the vibe for in seasons two or three that she doesn't like Joe or doesn't trust him. Oh, like, you know, she was the one who thought that his 
new relationship like she didn't buy or buy like everything of him as an actor or front or whatever. And like you said, tries to kick him out at the end of season three. So I thought this was a really interesting way for their relationship to finally come to a head. Uh, but for also for Joe to put everything out there that all the all the wrongs Donna may be able to suppress or put on other people that she has to she has to come to the reality with that. That isn't necessarily the case. So it seems like the uh, the scene is going to end, but then Donna slams the door on Joe's hand. Poor Joe with his arm and his hand. It's it's pretty brutal what what happens to the right side of his body. Yeah, it's not good. And I, I will say, like it, I definitely thought it was an accident from Donna. I don't think she purposely did it to him. Yes, it it was not. It was not purposefully done. After her reaction to it, makes it very clear that it was an accident. And the second part of this of the scene is kind of this reconciliation uh, with Donna saying that she's not that person and seemingly coming to some sort of a realization. And Joe, who would know what that's like, says that it hurts to be thought of in that way. And Joe eventually feels like he's able to drive himself home. But Joe is still in the car uh, as Donna runs out. And Joe very clearly sees that something is wrong. And that is the moment when Donna tells Joe about what happened. And we kind of see Cameron and Boz's reaction as well as Diane. Uh, Joni and Haley arrive to see their mom on the front stairs. And uh, the end of the episode is Cameron arriving to see uh, Joe staring at the whiteboard. So uh, a very quiet uh, but a very somber uh, end to the episode. And uh, this was this is an episode that almost started off in one way with Gordon being very happy. And just the show at the end just being completely upended. Whenever you... Whenever you kill the leads of your show, that's a very dramatic thing. But in the case of a show like Breaking Bad, Walter White did not die until the very last scene of the last episode. And this is a situation where we still have three episodes left. So this isn't the ending of the show, but it feels it feels like a, an important climax and an important moment for all of their lives. Totally. It is. And it is. It does feel that way because that's exactly what it is. And it also is at this point in the show of the main five, like the least emotionally volatile has been taken away. And now the rest of them who are more emotionally volatile have to deal with that. And it means having to deal with each other because they're just Gordon because he got along with everybody by the end, even if he did have his you know, issues here and there with some of them, his spats or whatnot. It, it's like he's the connective tissue and that brings them to kind of force to be together with Donna um, and on, on all this. So it's sort of like his death is the reason they all have to finally deal with each other. And I'm glad that they did that because like if this was the last episode, I'm like, man, I would have wanted to see the fallout of what it was like to deal with Gordon's death. So I'm glad they didn't do it. Breaking Bad style. And obviously Gordon and Walter White way different in the way they end up in their series. You know, we talk about similarities in the beginning but where they end up is two totally separate things so but yeah this is a this is a big moment definitely like i said i i definitely saw it coming uh but i i think the way they dealt with it was really well done um and it, and it leaves the it's a it's a big hit at the end of this episode it, it hits hard and it's meant to and it's uh it's just extremely well done television and very just emotionally destabilizing and i think what's what 
to follow up on that point and talking and comparing this to Breaking Bad, you know, Walter White, throughout the run of Breaking Bad, it feels like he's bringing people apart, and he is just ruining and desecrating all of these different relationships. Like, there's no way that Marie and Skylar probably are ever going to be able uh, to build a relationship. Walter Jr. and Skylar's relationship may permanently be damaged because of what happened. We know that Jesse literally has to leave. We know that Saul Goodman has to leave. So all of these various relationships and dichotomies are completely broken because of the actions of Walter White. I think where Gordon Clark is so different is he brings people together. And he brings people together not just when he's alive, but even after in the final three episodes he is the one that is bringing people together because, you know, like we said, he's the one that's getting along with everyone. And I think it would have been, it would have been very easy for this show to be Don Draper and Walter White build the computer together. Cause I think that's kind of how season one was positioned, but Gordon Clark is so different from Walter White by the end because he actually grows as a human being and he gets over some of his bullshit and he becomes just a much better person because of the people that are in his life and because he chooses to invest not only in the work that he is doing, but he is also investing in the people in his life. Even if he doesn't always get along with Donna, with Cameron, with Joe, and with Haley, he is invested in trying to make them better people as well, just as he made himself better. Absolutely, and I think that's that's a huge difference as he's able to make amends with the people in his life and... Uh, become a better person uh, and totally different from Walter White. So I'm glad that they that they strayed from like, let's let's do two successful AMC archetypes in one show. That's neat, right? And made them their own totally distinct, unique characters by the time we get to the end of the series. I mean, there is the lazy version of Breaking Bad, which I think is Ozark, a show that airs on Netflix. And I think that show, based on what I saw in the first season, was just a very lazy way of doing Breaking Bad. And Ozark is certainly a successful show, but it is not a show that I can find myself ever emotionally investing in because it feels like a lot more of the same. And I feel like at this point in the history of television, we've seen enough anti-heroes to know kind of what the tropes are and we've seen this done to death and I want to see what other shows are able to do and I think Halt and Catch Fire is a show that does something very different with its male characters and I think you have seen other shows respond to Breaking Bad and Mad Men and The Sopranos in very unique ways to get away from the great man stories and to tell different stories and to deal with the ramifications shows like BoJack Horseman Brockmire, Barry. These are shows that are very different in the way they portray their leads in in different ways, too. They are very, all three of them are very different, but they in some ways are so much of a response to the shows that we've seen in the past. Because in Brockmire, Brockmire is the story of a man trying to become better as the world around him gets worse. And Bojack is a, 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 a middle-aged man that kind of has to or a middle-aged horse that is kind of doing his own thing and like he has to pay for his sins by the end of the series and Barry is kind of the same thing as as Brockmire because Barry is trying to become a better person but he keeps kind of getting pulled back into uh, having to break bad so I really like the fact that we have we are getting away from the breaking bads and the madmen's not that those shows were bad 
but because those shows I think are excellent, but I think we've seen those stories before, and I think there that we may there may be some long term damage that gets done because maybe we don't acknowledge bad people for being bad people, and maybe we need to do a better job of that. Right. Like I don't. I've seen those shows. It's fine to take inspiration from them, but give me something new. Don't just give me. Uh, a Xerox copy or uh, the light version of that show. Also want to mention that all the shows you mentioned start with the letter B. So maybe there is something to that. There might be breaking bad Bojack. I mean, Ozark Ozark begins with an O. Yeah. Ozark begins with an O though. So it kind of ruins everything. Brock Meyer, Barry. Oh yes. Ozark is the worst. I hate that show so much. Um, but yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Barry Brock Meyer and, and Bojack are incredible shows in their own ways and i would strongly recommend watching them if you have not even though kevin even though you don't like baseball i think you should watch brockmeyer no but that wasn't that was not an example of a really great show that you were mentioning there it is over four seasons eight episodes a season and i mean hank azaria is in it for god's sakes how can you how can you not like hank azaria i'm sure i will someday is that show over or is there still new seasons coming <sighs> i knew i somehow i knew that he was going to make that joke and it still caught me by surprise. Uh, so, Kevin, before we get into episode eight, um, so this conversation was going to be a little difficult to have before, but man, the, the timing on this is just incredible. So I think p- part of what makes episode eight so significant is the writer of this episode, who is Zed Whedon, who is Joss and Jed's brother. And part of the connection that I made between this episode uh, and there is an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer called The Body. Kevin, I assume you've seen this episode at least once. Oh, yeah. I really love that episode um, because not only of a shock ending, but I think it's hilarious that Buffy's mother, who dies, who's played. Uh, what's her? I forget her first name. I know her kayfabe last name is Sutherland. Uh, that's the very first time she's put into the opening credits. And it has so happens to be the episode where Buffy comes home and her mother is dead. Uh, because Joss Whedon is a monster. That's that's probably why that happened. Um, but yeah, so The Body is one of the best episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer because they are they are trying to deal with the death of of a family member, in this case Buffy's mom. And it's just this it's this very weird episode that is shot very differently and they are they are in a very realistic way on a show that was very fantastical and that literally used magic sometimes, like they were dealing with the weight of this very real world happening. And I could not help but make the connection between that episode and this one, because episode eight very much feels in the same spirit as that episode. And it's obviously unfortunate because of the behavior of Joss Whedon, which as we've come to find out is abhorrent. And hopefully he never has, hopefully he never works in Hollywood again. But this episode to me is, it is not only one of the best episode of the series for me, it is one of my favorite episodes of television uh, that has ever been produced. And the wild thing is, is that from a plot standpoint, there really is no plot. It is, it is a lot of people working their shit out in Gordon's home. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, and sometimes you don't need a ton of exposition or plot to, to be such a great episode, but everything kind of just comes together into this really great ending and i think what also makes it so great is the follow-up and the in the next episodes help to bolster the strength of the episode itself 
Christine Sutherland, by the way, was the name of the actress. And I didn't even think of the parallels between them until you mentioned it. But yeah, uh, I can definitely see those for sure. But yeah, I, I would agree this is definitely one of the, probably the best of the season, one of the best of the series. And I, I in terms of where it stands in the realm of all of television, I think I need to I would need to like sit with it a little longer than just, you know, the few days ago that I've seen it. But no denying it's a great episode in and of itself. So, and we actually start with a flashback to when Gordon and Donna were struggling, and it seems like it's going to be this very nice, uh, friendly scene between these two, um, but it very quickly degenerates into an argument about what Gordon is contributing or not contributing, and it ends with Gordon leaving, and uh, kind of the payoff at the end, to fast forward, is uh, is Gordon jumping into a lake and swimming and, and kind of finding himself in a, in a moment of panic and returning home. Uh, to be with Donna. So it's this very cute kind of beginning and end to the series. Donna, so we have not seen Donna's parents since season one, and I think it's it's a good thing because the show has enough characters as it is. But I think it seems to me like we get a very different representation of who Donna's parents were in the series versus what we saw. Like, Donna's parents seem like monsters based on what Donna's describing, and I never got that impression while watching the first season. I think there is some continuity with it. They don't necessarily think of Gordon as this great provider for a family, which is that that I agree with. Yes. So I think because there's this whole thing about like, well, why don't you just we can you move down to Texas and we can get you a home and we can take care of them and all this stuff. And there's this I, I think Gordon takes it as this distrust that he will be able to take care and provide for their family. Uh, and they come from, they, they have good money so they can take care of them. But obviously Gordon takes it. I, I don't know if he takes it the wrong way or the right way or what have you, but the, he, he at this point has no interest in moving to Texas and all this other stuff. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to go from the death of him to this flashback where just Joni is alive and where they were at their times of their life. Then great wig work on everybody, great outfit work on everybody. Uh, but just a, I thought it was a great way to pick up from from the end of that last episode. So as the episode begins proper, we get Donna and the girls arriving uh, to Gordon's house to begin clearing it out. Green means keep and red means donate. That is a that's a nice little nice little touch of just uh, how they're going to approach uh, taking everything out of this uh, pretty big house. Cameron and Joe arrive. So there's a running gag a little bit. To me, it came off like a running gag. Everybody keeps mentioning how beautiful the service was. And I thought it was going to pay off in some way uh, at the end with the Cameron and Donna conversation, but it really doesn't. But it just feels like this very trite thing to say. And I guess they're being sincere in this way. I don't know. How did you feel about it? Because it definitely felt like it was kind of a running gag. I thought they were being sincere, but I think, again, it's also sort of this like forced thing of like, well, he's dead, so we kind of have to... We have to come together and help. Uh, but I, but again, I do think there's genuineness to it because even if there's damage, so to speak, there is a lot of love with with at least uh, Haley and Joni. And then, Joe, <laughs> this might be, with context, of course, the best line in the entire series. He asks how Don is doing, and then he said, what a stupid question. We're terrible. Everyone's terrible. Yeah, I. Uh, it is unfortunately more true now than ever. Everyone is terrible, Kevin. Everyone is terrible. I think now, like, when I ask somebody how they're doing, it's like, 
how are you doing? Well, you know, given the circumstances, like putting, putting the awfulness of just life aside, how are you doing kind of thing? You know, it's genuinely hilarious is so, so Donna and Cameron have this conversation and they talk about this idea of how are you doing and how loaded it is. Someone literally asked me how I was doing like two hours later and I typed back hanging in there. (laughs) Was it, was it inspiration from this or just your genuine reaction? It was, it was inspiration from this because I had watched this episode and after this conversation, it's just, it's wild. Um, so yeah, I just put that on a poster. Everyone's terrible, upset by Joe McMahon. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'll take that poster for my birthday. Thank you very much. Uh, do you have any opinions? So there is this montage of cleaning, very long montage, three to four minutes of the episode runtime. What Do you have any feelings on the song that is playing over the montage? Oh, gosh, it's a Dire Straits song. I don't remember the exact name of it. I put it in the notes, Kevin. So far away. So far away. Good song choice, I thought, because uh, it's because they take it from Joe's record collection. And it's definitely not a 90s album. It's definitely late 80s. Um, but I think, you know, who who puts on the record? Is it Donna? Yes. OK, so my so my inclination was like maybe it reminds her of just better times or obviously it's sort of kind of it it, it fits the scene pretty well, I think. But I, I think it was a, a good choice from her, all this stuff. So I thought it was a, a, a good scene as sort of like everyone is sort of just kind of no one's emotionally ready, I think, yet to move on or do what do what they're doing. But it's sort of like you're doing the things you have to do uh, in order to, to move forward. But maybe maybe they're. They're there in the present doing this, but I think emotionally distant, which I think kind of fits the so far away motif. So there's a lot to talk about with Joni in this episode as Donna finds uh, some of her empty applications and it is brought up that Joni is not going to be going to college because she didn't send these applications in and it leads to this big argument. And I think that part of what is so frustrating about this moment is uh, one of the things that Donna throws in Joni's face is how disappointed her father would be in her, which, I mean, that's, that, I just, I generally think that's not cool to do, because you don't know what this person is, how they're actually going to react, so Joni rightfully calls her on it, and I think this is one of those situations where they're both, they're both behaving poorly, but this is not the time or the place to bring up the fact that Joni is not going to college, right? We can agree on that. We can, but the thing is, is they already brought it up in episode one or two. Like there's a conversation with one of these dinners with Donna and Gordon where they both talk about how Joni's expressed that she doesn't want to go to college. And so and so as far as I know, nothing's changed between that conversation and now. So why is Donna so surprised? Is there a scene we're missing where she decides she is going to go to college and she has these applications and then it turns out she's not? Like there, there's just a disconnect for me because I was like, why are you so mad at her? Why are you surprised? Like we knew she wasn't going to college already or she didn't want to. I think it's totally fair. I think that they were really building in the conflict between Joni and Donna so that it could pay off so that it could continue in episode nine and kind of have this this very emotionally cathartic moment in episode 10. So I think it works in that way. But I think when you think about it in a macro sense, it doesn't totally jive together. Yeah, I just I just needed something more because I remember being like, I swear we talked about this already. And what so this this seems off. So Joni, of course, to troll her mother is smoking cigarettes in her bedroom. Uh, Cameron goes in to talk to Joni. And uh, this is another great conversation that uh, where Cameron calls Joni a dick. But she also calls herself one as two uh, in a moment of real emotional honesty. 
Uh, but the conversation gets a lot deeper, and there's so many of these great conversations that take place between so many of the characters and so many of these emotionally cathartic moments. And one of the things that Cameron talks about is this idea of how you spend your time and when you're arguing with someone. And one of the things that she says is that it's time you can't get back. And she's right. And I think that's that's probably ringing true for a lot of people and really deep in her head, both with Gordon's death and the heart attack with is just your time is valuable. Really? Like, is this is this really going to be worth it? Is you trolling your mom worth it? So on and so forth. So I think it was a really good conversation for her to have. And I think Cameron's a really good advocate for the kids. And obviously it's a it's a friend of their moms or ex friend of their moms or whatever they are at this point talking to them as opposed to their mom talking to them. So it it it, it registers more. And I think Cameron identifying as a dick while also calling her a dick, but also having similarities in their past like or, or her past with Joni's present also is very helpful. So, yeah, really good, really good scene here. So we also got some stuff between Joe and Haley because Joe uh, took a batch of clothes to the Goodwill. There's a green sweater of Gordon's that Haley wanted. Uh, so they go on an adventure to go back to the Goodwill and get that sweater. Uh, they, Haley is listening to music by herself. And then Joe's like, why don't you play the music on, on the stereo? So she does. And uh, do you want to talk about the look that Joe gives Haley when they play her music? What even is the music? Is it like some like little kids cassette tape or something? I don't I don't know. Like I'm not, again, I'm not the music expert. I was hoping you would know. No, it just felt like maybe like but Joe is just like shocked that it would be what she was listening to. Like it, it felt like um I don't know. Like it, it you're like am I supposed to take her as being like this very emotionally arrested development person or is this like a tape from her childhood that reminds her of her dad? I'm more inclined to think the latter based on what she ends up listening to later, but that was not at all what Joe was expecting. Someone with two They Might Be Giants posters on their walls to be playing. Which I know you appreciated tremendously. My favorite band, Flood, especially one of their, maybe my favorite album ever. Uh, I'm very pro-Haley in so many ways in this show. We have a lot in common, as it turns out. So they go to the Goodwill uh, to look in the bags. And the Goodwill guy is just a dick. He's not even a real character. He's just a dick. And one of the things that I literally wrote in my notes is fuck off. Because he's just an obstructionist in this episode. He doesn't want them looking through the bags. Which I understand to an extent. But you can clearly see with two eyes, with two clear eyes, that this is an emotionally fraught situation. Don't, just don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. You work for the goodwill. You are literally supposed to be helping people. Don't be a dick. What if what if Joe had, had a heart attack then? Maybe with that guy who felt bad then? Is that what it takes? Apparently that's what it takes to get what you want in the show. But Joe... <laughs> I don't even know if Haley can officially drive, but Joe lets Haley drive the truck and they decide that they are going to take the one bag that they need that they think the sweater is in. So Joe literally takes the bag and runs out with it. The only thing I'm disappointed in, Kevin, is that we did not actually see how Joe stole the bag. Like, did he tell the Goodwill guy to turn around and look at something, steal the bag and run out? I I really wanted that scene desperately. (laughs) Hey, what's that? Huh? Yoink. Like the Simpsons where they tell Moe to look at the wall. Yes, and he does. Uh, oh, he does check with Haley. She does have her learner's permit, she says. Okay. Um, so Joe does grab the wrong bag because they have very colorful clothing that Gordon would never wear. But but I don't know whether it's because 
what the reason is, but it is a moment of catharsis because they literally just burst out laughing. Maybe it's one of those, if we're not laughing, we're crying, but it's a great moment between these two characters. It's a, it's a phenomenal moment. I think the fact that Joe went to those lengths to make her feel better is enough. It's, it's the gesture more than the actual item itself. That that's really, that it's really what matters most. So we get a brief moment. Uh, oh, poor Katie, poor, poor Katie. She, uh, she decides that she is going to move to Seattle because of what happened. She does ask about what's happening with Comet, and Cameron says that Joe is going to keep it alive. Katie also mentions how uh, beautiful the service was. She actually does make it into the house, but she, she points to uh, the place that she found Gordon, and she basically leaves right away after uh, getting a couple of pictures. And she does have... A little bit of an awkward conversation with Donna, but basically she does talk about like their relationship and the relationship that Donna had with Gordon and one of the pictures that uh, was showcased. And I don't know, it's it's unfortunate that we did not get more with her. And I don't know, maybe it is because like my knowledge of her extends to like what happened in the movie My Girl, which is kind of silly, but it's just like, man, can't she catch a break? Right. I wanted to see an actual scene of her at the, the roller derby rink, like her and the girls having a good time there, which we, we too unfortunately didn't get. But I do like that Donna sees the photo of them on the refrigerator and she seems genuinely happy that Gordon had someone in his life uh, before it came to a tragic end. And yeah, I feel I feel awful for Katie. Just what an awful thing to experience and going back to the house and reliving the the, the trauma of the same space on the floor where he died. Like, oh, just You can't help but feel bad for her. She comes into the game late and she's left with just this emotionally awful situation. So we do uh, get an early conversation with Donna and Cameron. Donna tells Cameron that she finished Pilgrim, which is important and is going to come back. And Donna also comments to Cameron about how good Joe is with the girls. And uh, it's, it's a nice payoff. And it's something where we saw it in the first season. I don't know if it was something that the writers intended on following up on. But they did a great job of laying that seed and kind of playing through it for the rest of the series. Yeah, because it, it's at, is it at the end of this episode where they have the conversation outside about kids and stuff. So, yeah, so it leads into that very nicely. And I can't remember if it's in the montage or here or whatever, but I do like that Cameron is go is like helping pack up and she finds photographs of them and decides to take some from her for herself. For sure. And um, so Joni and Haley, again, we don't get a lot of scenes between them, but they feel really meaningful. Uh, Joni and Haley have a conversation about college, and Joni says that she doesn't want any of this stuff. And Haley asks Joni, as they're they're kind of cuddling in bed, uh, she asks if uh, Joni's going to go away, and we do not see Joni answer. So uh, that's obviously important because of what's going to happen in the next episode. But it's uh, it's nice to see Joni and Haley not being dicks to each other. Yeah, because Joni, I think, gives her a hard time. But at the end of the day, they are they are sisters and they love each other and they do have a nice connection to one another. And so it's like, you know, I think it's like every sibling in, in so many ways where they they fight the older ones meaner to the younger one. But but they do love each other. Uh, so, Kevin, I have a, I have a very important question for you in relation to this episode. Go for it. How badly did you want to try some of Boz's chili? So badly, it sounded so good. What if one of the one of Joe ate some of the chili and saw a coyote? <laughs> that would have been uh, pretty wild. Or, or or if he called out Boz on uh, 
his his five alarm chili only having three alarms. That keeps our streak of sim. We make our, our goal is to make a Simpsons reference every episode of podcasting that we do together, and we've made two now. So if you're keeping track at home, Boz, are you going to jail? We'll see, Haley. We'll see. Uh, Boz actually did go to jail. Yeah, but that was in the past. Maybe he'll go to jail for his three alarm chili though. Um. So, in all seriousness, there is. There's this very authentic moment where Boz is trying to reminisce about Gordon and Joe just says he's not ready to do that. And I think that just felt so real to me because there are times when you're really not ready to do that sort of thing and reminisce about people. And for some, I think it's really easy to do. But especially for me, I know that days after uh, an impactful death like this, I know that I wouldn't be ready to do it. I think it's also great that he comes over and makes food. I think that's very real too, is you're when you're looming in the thing of death and it's just on your head, like you forget about basic functions like, oh, you need to eat or uh, all these other things. So I think having people check up on you or take care of the work for you and bringing you food and stuff is also a very realistic thing that happens when, when death comes. Well, that's why you see the, the, the stereotype is with casseroles and whatnot, right? Something that you right. could just throw in the oven. Uh, so Cameron and Donna have a really impactful conversation as they are, the fences are slowly being mended. Uh, Cameron says that she doesn't know, she didn't know going back to the house would be so hard. Uh, Donna and Cameron talk about the fraughtness of asking, how are you doing? As you mentioned earlier, and, and Cameron says something really powerful, talking about losing a really good friend and, and not having a lot of those to spare. And Donna agrees with her that these two people who have been so obsessed with their work and maybe not as obsessed with the things that really matter in building relationships. And I think this is where you kind of realize their relationship is really, it's been the centerpiece of the show, but we're really coming back to it here at the end of the series that, you know, Gordon is dead and it sucks and it's awful, but this is the relationship that is the most meaningful and impactful that that has carried us basically for the entire run of the show, but especially the last three seasons. And almost like quietly carrying the show, because I think you focus on the marriage or the professional relationships uh, or the relationship she has to Joe. And then when it comes down to this, you realize it really boils down to the relationship of Cameron and Donna. So I like that it's almost like quietly sneaks up on you, like this is the relationship that's been carrying it throughout the life cycle. You don't see it coming even when she joins mutiny at the end of season one that like this is going to be the thing that that sustains the show and here we are and i think it's awesome and i really love that cameron brings up that joe wants kids she doesn't she never does and care and donna's like good don't you know if that's how you feel don't change your mind about it like it's really hard and you have to really want it to do a halfway decent job so i like that she empowers and emboldens cameron to, especially as a mother of two to stick to her guns and if that's how you feel in your gut that's that's how it is. And I think that's a, that's a really big thing in relationships in real life is kids versus not wanting kids. And I've I've seen relationships that split up because of it. I've seen people having to have really honest conversations before they get married about it. it it's it's a very real and important thing to the relationship. And obviously, there's a lot of things that are fraught and not so great about the relationship between Joe and Cameron. But this is a really, really big one. Yeah, and Donna, towards the end, says that she misses Cameron, and then they go back to enjoy some of Boz's chili. Donna noticeably turns down wine, 
which I think is really significant given where she's been this season. And uh, there is a reference made to kids. And uh, Kyo looks very despondent at the end of this episode. And this is clearly Im- I, this is clearly impacting him a lot with the conversation with Boz and everything going on with Cameron. Uh, Joe is Joe is not in a good place, and it seems like in a lot of ways the the Comet and Gordon were kind of defining him in some ways, and now he kind of has to weigh, he has to find a way to define himself. See, I thought it was just he was so upset at the thought of pineapple and chili that Boz brought up that it that it really ruined his whole evening. I mean, that is pretty horrifying. Like. I'm not here. I'm not here to judge, but the Instagramification, which is not a word, of food is really disgusting. Like I saw this thing where in Iowa they were putting Fruit Loops in pizza, and I literally sent a message to my friends, and I was like, "Ladies and gentlemen, we need to go to Iowa and make a citizen's arrest." <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's definitely was. Um, w- I don't know that would have been done in the day of no social media, but no. In all, in all seriousness, yeah, I think Gordon is just like, well, who? am I without Gordon as a partner right now? Because so much of his past decade has been tied to him either as partner, an enemy, someone he stole an idea from that, that allowed him to build McMillan utility. And now it's someone who he, they, things seem to be going along pretty darn good. They were humming along and now he's gone. And what do I do now? So as we begin episode nine, it is the relaunch of Comet. It is Cameron's last day. She has apparently stayed on for the last few months to help put things together. Joe reiterates the statements uh, about computers being the thing that gets us to the thing. It's kind of the, been the theme of the last four seasons and been something that Joe has consistently talked about. Um, so there's that part of it. And then there's Joni traveling to Thailand and wanting to be treated like an adult. Donna asks, makes this last minute plea uh, for Joni to not go. And um, things are things are not great uh, between these two, but... I think there's something really powerful about the idea of what Joni... Like, Joni is clearly very interested in not pursuing a traditional academic um, path anyway. But I think it's very natural, after going through a trauma like this, to move or to do something like this. Because, like, I can tell you from personal experience, like, I went through a really bad breakup, and then I went to China nine months later. So... I certainly understand where Joni is coming from, and I think it is a very natural response to you have something taken away from you, and you realize that life is short, and life that we are given a limited amount of time on this planet, why not do everything possible to live up to um, just what it means to be a human being, and have different experiences, and travel around the world, and, and do this thing. I mean, I think it's just natural, and it's something that I wish, I wish it some, I wish it was something that everybody had the chance to do. I think everybody should have to get a passport and leave the country for at least a year. Yeah, it's it's also interesting. Like it can be both healthy and bad. Like I was just listening to one of Ron Funch's podcasts, and he talked about how what before COVID, when traveling and stuff it was actually kind of a good and bad thing because when he was with significant others, they might get arguments or fights and then he'd have to go leave and things would reconcile just because you miss each other. And that's how like, but like the actual core of the issue itself wasn't dealt with. And in some case, and I think in some cases when it comes to a loss or some other things like, yes, maybe leaving can be healing or better, but it all comes down to, are you getting at the heart of the issue? And I really like in, uh, in episode 10, she has that, that, that moment where she's able to 
come to terms with her father's death and it isn't just a trip for the sake of taking a trip or whatever. Um, but you're right. It is a very, I think, natural course of things. And Joni just happens to be at a place in her life where she can take this trip and, and, and deal with it. But it also does sort of leave Haley on her own as the, as the lone sibling in the household. Absolutely. Uh, in good news, Boz goes to the doctors. He is in good health. And he is going to live well into the 21st century. Just, um, Boz, if you can, just tap out around 2015, maybe early 2016. That's still well into the 21st century. But, man, you don't want to see what comes after that. Yeah, like maybe November 1st, 2016. Uh, make it before the Cubs win the World Series. Eh, so let's say mid-October. So you, there is something about this scene that you wanted to talk about. Uh, so, the, so first of all, he gets this news and he walks out triumphantly to music. And it took me a second to pinpoint the music that I, where, like, I was like, I know this song. Why do I know this song? And I am proud to tell you, Jerome, that without looking it up, I recognize this as Jimmy King's theme music and the great film Ready to Rumble. I hate you so much. I was like, I wonder if Jerome will, will pinpoint this or not. I, I think I've watched Ready to Rumble once in my life. And I think even that was too many. <laughs> I, God, I love that movie. It's so bad. I'm not going to tell you it's good, but I've watched that movie more times than I care to. It's, it's, I've watched it more times than I care to admit. It's historically bad. Why, why, why would you subject yourself? Why do you like bad things, Kevin? <sighs> I think we all, I like, I don't know. I don't know, Jerome. I can't just watch good stuff all the time. I mean, I did watch Tom and Jerry, so I can see where you're coming from. Was that not good? I see. I... It was bad. Okay. Rob Delaney's in it, though. So I was like, I kind of want to see what he does in that. I like Rob Delaney a lot. I like Michael Pena. I like Chloe Moretz. The movie is bad. That's a shame. Because, like, I love Tom and Jerry as a kid, too. But I mean, what are you gonna look at my name. <laughs> One of the nicknames for Jerome is Jerry. Of course I'm going to like it. Does it make you feel better if I can't tell you the last time I watched Ready to Rumble? Either, either, uh, I, I, like, either I'm not sober or I'm in the process of not being sober. Well, I guess that's a good thing. You don't want to watch good stuff then. For sure. But there's other bad things you can watch too. Sure. This just happens to be my bad thing of choice sometimes. Not every time, but sometimes. All right, let's, we're almost at three hours. Let's, let's try to stay on task. Uh, Joe talks about connecting comments in Netscape and needs Cameron's help. Uh, Gordon's watch keeps going off and Joe does not have a key to the office. This is kind of a running gag that goes throughout the episode. And I'm just going to tell you what the payoff is. There's a point when the watch goes off and Joe is so goddamn sick and tired of hearing it that he throws a chair through the window to get into the office and shut the watch off. And it comes at a great point in the episode, but yeah, it's a, it's a nice little just like thing that comes around to the end of the episode where he finally shuts it off after getting some uh, pretty awful uh, news. For sure. Uh, so Donna, on the other hand, is swimming. She's taken the summer off to be with Haley and Joni based on the conversation that she has with Diane. Diane talks about her kid and brings up the possibility of being the manager of being a managing partner once again. And it is unclear how that's going to be resolved. Boz and Diane have their conversation. They talk about Donna. They talk about traveling. Boz again mentions the fact that he is going to live well into the 21st century. Kevin, were you concerned that he was going to die the next episode based on just how many times they were mentioning he was going to live well into the 21st century? 
a little bit, but I also thought because of Gordon's death that they wouldn't go that route. Right. That's that's kind of where I was, too. But in the back of my mind on the first watch, I was like, eh, I'm a little worried. <laughs> if, if, if It would have felt like a really bold choice to do two deaths so close to each other. But I think like if, if Gordon hadn't died, it would have probably been a sure thing. Uh, so we get a dinner with Joe, Cameron, Haley, and Donna. It's worth mentioning, Haley has heard from Joni, but Donna has not. And uh, Donna really does not seem like she knows uh, what she wants to do. And um, so that's really unfortunate. Also, uh, Haley yells at Joe about the commercial uh, and the money that he is making from her creation, which is very reminiscent of some of the conversations that Gordon and Joe were having in season one. Uh, Donna tries to calm Haley down uh, after this, and yeah, Haley Haley is not doing well. She kind of feels abandoned by her sister, the fact that her father is not there, uh, just with everything going on. Yeah, it's it's got to be hard for her, and I think you get this realization that she's sort of torn about how she feels in that she maybe she doesn't get along with people her age so much, but you can tell like at dinner and things like that that she's also – she things are reaching a breaking point. Her father is dead. Her sister is gone. She's overwhelmed by kind of being the lone teenager in this world of adulthood where she's almost being forced to grow up a little too quickly. And maybe all this is realizing like, this is a too much of an emotional burden for some 15 year old girl to be handling. And it reaches a breaking point. And meanwhile, Donna, even though it's her ex-husband, I think is taking the, the loss hard as one would expect and also her older daughter is gone for the first time. And so there's a lot for her to deal with. So there's a lot of just emotional volatility going on in that household, unfortunately. Yeah, and unfortunately that is the case. But we get Donna, we get Donna fixing things again. Uh, Donna is fixing something for Boz. And kind of reminiscent of what Joe was talking about with his father, uh, Boz talks about the fact that he has officially or is going to outlive his father. And... Uh, that is a that is a very powerful moment, and it's one that I think as we get into more modern times, because people are eating better, smoking less, drinking less, like this is definitely a thing where people are kind of outliving most of their ancestors. Aging better too, although I don't know. I feel like the everything you said I think can have an asterisk on this year in particular. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, it's I mean the like the. Uh, the average lifespan for an American has gone down one year, a full year, because of the pandemic. And I'm sure things that are things are are associated uh, with that. Everything's fine. Kevin, Joe said it. Everything's terrible. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, but that was in the '90s. I mean, everything's okay now. Every Kevin, you're going to get a lot of texts saying everything is terrible now. Speaking of everything being terrible, Haley, in addition to not having a great family life, she gets turned on by her crush. We do not see her get turned on by her crush, whether there, it's not a mutual attraction situation, whether she is also not uh, queer, but unfortunately, Haley is not going to be able to go out on a date. Uh, maybe not a good idea to suggest natural-born killers as a first date, but still... That's that's my head canis since we don't see it you can't you can't prove to me that the only reason she got turned down is because she suggested natural born killers as a movie. So I will point out the true romance and natural born killers are essentially the same movie. True romance is much better. Yeah, I I would agree with that. But I this is also 
This is before the dinner where she freaks out, right, with Haley? Uh, I don't. I don't quite remember the order of the scene, but it's definitely. I think. I think it happens after. Yeah. Well, just imagine like her scenario. So she, she finally gets up the 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 courage to ask out this girl she has a crush on after everything else going on in her life. And now she gets turned down. Man, if if it took anything to to break Haley, this is it. I mean, they all. I, just all this stuff at once has to really be hard to deal with, especially someone her age. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's she was in an emotionally sensitive situation even before Gordon's death, but I mean, the last four months have just got to be just, just horrifying in a way. Uh, so we get Joe and Cameron arguing about comments. Um, Alexa, who we have not mentioned very much with good reason, uh, sends an email about Netscape and... Uh, they make a new discovery of of a place that is indexing websites and is taking off Yahoo. Uh, what's Yahoo? They say. I feel like every every single show that takes place in a prior time, they always have to do something like this. But this show has been really good about not doing that, and it feels like it's like we're at the end of the run. We're doing it now because it's Yahoo. Yeah, and that's that. That's why like it gets a pass is because like they don't do it very often, and they saved it for this like huge moment where Joe realizes like we lost. And I love that like it comes for the scene where there he's kind of getting a little bit angry at Cameron for maybe not taking this as seriously, but you know, or working as hard as he thinks. And he's on the toolbar for the new Netscape update, and he's like, "That's it, we've lost. It's on the toolbar. It's them now. It's it's over." Uh, and that's when he breaks the the glass and gets the watch, but. Isn't it crazy? Like that's that to me is like a, such a huge takeaway from the show is isn't it crazy how you can have all these years building on something, having these great ideas, putting in the man hours, finally having all these things put together. And then all of a sudden they're in the toolbar and you lose just like that and it's over and you have to start from scratch. That that reminds me of the reporter who made a reference. He was like, I was working on the story and Trump just tweeted it out. <laughs> tweeted it. Yep. Yep. It's amazing. I think that's so much to me of what this show is about um, is just all the things that they work on or all the things that they have worked on. Like the people don't really get remembered. Your ideas can get stolen or bettered or built, you know, bought up by a corporation or whatever so fast or you let your emotions get in the way of things. And you don't even know the people behind these things, but to the people who are in them, they're so important. But and like just like that, whatever you built, your legacy, all these things that suddenly seem so important are over like that. And this scene really exemplifies that. Speaking of over, Cameron officially breaks up with Joe and, uh, you know, mentions that she wanted to make this work. But at this point, it's it's just it's not going to work. So. They had been together for most of the season, and here at the end of episode nine, they are officially not together. Uh, Donna and Trip discuss Yahoo, and um, Donna cracks. That's the only way I could describe it. She totally cracks. I mean, she's not even on the sauce anymore, and she just completely cracks. It's like, uh, it, it, it. I couldn't help but think of the ending to um, uh, Doctor Strangelove, when he's on the bomb just going insane as it's as a, it, it heads to ground. That's Donna's moment where everyone's just looking at her like, oh my God, she snapped. Dr. Strangelove and Halton Catch Fire. That, that's, they have a lot in common. Uh, so what? We need a, we, there was no war room. There's no fighting in the war room, Jerome. <sighs> you, I was literally going to say that and you ruined it. That, 
That's just an all-time classic movie quote. Come on. You can read more about my thoughts on Dr. Strangelove on EnterTheRealWorld.com, one of my 400 favorite movies of all time. You're welcome. Uh, so episode 10, we go from Donna yelling Yahoo to Donna watching the great, the legendary Bob Ross. I just feel like with the ubiquity of Bob Ross as like an internet meme over the past decade, and I even think there was like an internet channel that was showing old Bob Ross episodes, you got to sneak him in there when you can. It is uh, it is pretty remarkable. Uh, so Joni calls Donna, and this is the last Joni scene, and what a scene it is. Uh, Joni calls Donna, talks about her experiences with the Buddha, um, and seeing her father in a new way, and uh, she says uh, that she and Donna are very similar, and it is, uh, it's a very touching last scene because we don't see Joni the rest of the episode because, of course, she is in Thailand. But um, I'm really glad that they got to have their cathartic moment. I think even though we did not know Joni very well uh, in the final season, I'm really glad that we got to have this last scene and that her and Donna have some sort of an understanding. Not to say that their relationship is perfect or that everything is fixed, but it was great that they had this moment together. No, I don't. Yeah, nothing, not everything is fixed, but I think that it lets you know that they're going to be okay. And I do like that. She acknowledges that her and her mom are so alike. And I do like that in the previous episode, they're asking about Joni and Haley has all the, all the information is able to catch him up. And it kind of hurts Donna because she realizes that Joni's been in touch with her, but not her. And so now that Joni's calling her directly and catching her up and telling her this very this story about how she felt connection to her father during a trip and how she's kind of come to terms with her father's death and all that. And she's telling it to her mom is such a great way to have their final scene in this episode where, like you said, they don't totally kiss and make up. But she says that she loves her and uh, you feel like things are going to be good for them in the future. So there is not a lot of Joe in this uh, in this series finale, but he does get a couple of moments to shine. Uh, he says goodbye to the Comet workers, and uh, we see a brief flashback to Gordon and Joe. It's in, what is a nice moment, and then go Joe goes to a tarot card reader. Kevin, I can't believe that you don't know Carol Kane very well. I was very surprised by this. I couldn't remember her name out of my head, but yeah, I was, I immediately was like, oh yeah, the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt person. But yes, of course the, the incredible Carol Kane, but I, I definitely know her from other things, but I think just recency bias and just cause she looks and like, it is a very similar way that she's in Kimmy Schmidt. I just was like, oh, right. That woman, you could, you could tell by this. I'm not the best with names sometimes, even remembering back to our breaking bad podcast. No, of course, Carol Kane is remembered for so much, of course. Uh, she played a role in The Princess Bride. Uh, she was Lutka's girlfriend on Taxi. Uh, Kimmy Schmidt, as you mentioned. And, yeah, she's just, uh, she's really awesome. And uh, playing uh, her usual quirky and weird self in this show as well. Uh, Joe even buys some tarot cards at one point. Nearly gets hit by a car and then happens to run into an old boyfriend, Dale, and uh, they have a conversation and then that's that's kind of it for Joe. I mean, the Joe stuff in this episode was a little bit weird, especially with him buying the cars, almost getting killed, and then just happening to run into an old boyfriend. It was a little weird. Yeah, it was a little ham-fisted. He does seem like the type of person who might go to a tarot card reader, I think. But I also was like, when the guy almost ran him over and the guy was like, hey, buddy, are you okay? No way that's what the guy would have said in real life. There would have been expletives and get the F out of the road, all this stuff. So a little bizarre, I will agree. 
So, uh, the return of Symphonic, as Symphonic is the name of, uh, I guess, I, I don't know if this is Donna's company or if it's, uh, like her own carved out part of the, of the, of the organization. Um, but Donna is kind of getting back into creation. And at one point she is trying out with, uh, some people, a brand new PlayStation, which, I guess they would be testing a PlayStation in 1994, right? At least Japan definitely would. Yeah, I, I'm I'm fairly certain the first PlayStation comes out in America in 1995. And so I'm trying to look it up real quick. So yeah, it comes out in December of 94 in Japan, September of 95 in North America. So yeah, this would 100% be in its testing phases. For sure. So PlayStation, that like that'll go anywhere. That'll put butts in the seats at home. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You tried. Uh, so Cameron and Alexa argue in the car. Camera, they basically they basically break up. Um, let's get to the important stuff now. Boz tells Cameron at one point that she's got a lot of love in her and says she's kind of being drawn by the world. Uh, Cameron agrees and she basically decides um, to go on kind of a road trip and go to Florida to see her mom. But before she does that, um, you know, she wants to resolve things uh, with Donna. And... Um, her and Boz, it's a very emotional scene. It's kind of their last scene together and a very fitting one, I would say, because their relationship has has been one of the best on the show because it's not been romantic. It's not even necessarily been platonic. It's been very much a father-daughter relationship. And it was, uh, it was very touching that they got to have their one last scene. I mean, you knew you were going to get this scene at some point, and I'm glad that we got it in the last episode. Yeah, so am I. Very, very paternal of him to maybe help her recognize something, to vocalize something that's in her that maybe she didn't realize or just needed to hear, and sets her on a good path. And I think she she definitely is in need for some head clearing as well or some sort of direction too. So I think her going back to her parents and doing some road tripping, was it would definitely be a really good thing for her. So Cameron decides that she has a box that she needs to give back to Joe, uh, and Joe has completely disappeared. His apartment is completely empty. Uh, kind of reminiscent of what we've seen in the past, I would say. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely very true. Um, he he's a little bit of a nomad, a little bit of a scavenger, uh, and you know, kind of moving around where wherever the the next job is, but also I think at his own whims. And I think Joe kind of vanishing in the night without a trace is very fitting for where he is in his life right now. So a lot of the rest of the episode is Donna and Cameron resolving their issues. But before a party is set to begin, Haley comes home with a quote unquote boyfriend uh, and says that everyone is leaving now. And Donna even makes the joke that Haley doesn't seem to like the boyfriend. Uh, there's a there's a bit of an awkward hug that takes place. Um, so uh, any impressions of Haley's boyfriend? I mean, Poor guy. Now, I could not tell. Were they trying to... Al- the, I don't know if they were saying that he was also gay and they were just trying to, like, be gay together or if he was just a dude. I, I didn't quite know how that was working out. I don't either. And I don't think that they intended for it to be totally expressed either way. Maybe she's just exploring herself or perhaps it is sort of those like 
hey, man, being gay in high school is really hard. We're both gay. Let's just pretend to be uh, in a relationship so no one picks on us. I don't know. They, they, it's, it's not like they had a ton of time to really explore, express what it is necessarily. So up to interpretation, I think. So Haley has a meltdown as a, a project that she's been working on for a college class has, has basically disappeared. And we kind of go back to, again, something with season one where Cameron and Donna, in this case, uh, have to try to fix Haley's computer together. Again, we're not being subtle here, but it's uh, it's a really great moment um, that Cameron and Donna have to share together because, again, they're kind of fixing something uh, as a duo. The movie that is out, Kevin Ford, though, is Star Trek Generations. And for those who have not seen Star Trek Generations, it is not a one-for-one but I think a lot of the people who feel disappointment about maybe Star Wars prequels or Star Wars sequels, I think a lot of them felt that about Star Trek Generations. And this comes up in conversation a little bit later on. But uh, Cameron and Donna having to work together. And uh, Cameron notices Donna in the dress. And uh, let's just say I think Kevin and I did too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Uh, but all I'll say about Star Trek Generations is, you know what? Maybe maybe go see Natural Killers instead. I take it back. Wow. Um, so Cameron is uh, is pissed that Joe left, and uh, Cameron brings up the idea of of working together, and there's there's kind of this awkward back and forth about, you know, what they can do and what they should do. Eventually, Haley comes home, and you know, we talked about like Gordon going to see the Star Wars prequels and complaining about it. We kind of got a version of that scene. I'd forgotten that this took place, but Haley comes home and complains about Star Trek Generations and Captain Kirk dying, which I, I was very amused by it. Yeah, but it's not like a, a traditional complaint. She's She just sounds like very confused. Like, I think I just watched this movie and I think this is what happened, which is, uh, I think, a, a very apt review of Star Trek Generations at that time. Can we can we fast forward five years and get Haley's reaction to Star Wars Phantom Menace? <laughs> I think it was good. <laughs> Please. <laughs> See, this is this is the real shame. We know you know what? It's not a shame. Maybe it's a good thing Gordon didn't live to see the prequels. Oh God. You're a terrible person. Am I? Or or did he just save himself the strife of the Star Wars fan? Uh so Cameron brings up the letter that Joe wrote to Haley and Cameron realizes that uh, Joe has gone back to uh, the place uh, that he was, uh, that he kind of grew up in. So that is a very interesting moment. And, uh, and a reaction to this before we get to uh, Donna's big speech, which I think is one of the most important of the series. Oh yeah. Uh, Amazing way to end it. She's having this big women in tech party at her house and she very publicly owns up to the mistake she made with mutiny ousting Cameron uh, and saying that that's very like, it's it's bringing up sort of the awkwardness of like, yes, I'm holding this big women in tech thing. And then I ousted my own partner, a female at this company owning her mistakes and talking about just all the great and, and re- truly honoring all the great strides in tech that women can make and uh, don't get the credit for all this time. Unfortunately for her, Cameron's there and hears this and is very, uh, happy to hear her take ownership of what she did at Mutiny. And I think that's this is 
this is sort of coming with, you know, how her relationship ended with or, or how she how bad she felt with Boz when he had the heart attack and how bad she felt with Gordon, because she mentions in that conversation at the end of episode eight about how a lot of times she'd give Gordon a hard time for the things he did wrong or this or that. And I think she's having a lot of uh, issues and coming to terms with that that she doesn't want it to be too late with Cameron. And so she takes ownership with this and with says, I'm sorry, without saying I'm sorry exactly. But Cameron's happy to hear it. Um, and it, it is really an awesome scene and a great uh, thing for Donna to do for, for Cameron is own it, do it publicly. And uh, unfortunately for Cameron, she does not watch her step. She turns around. So, Kevin, you know, we talk about comedy and things that don't work and things that do work. And... For a show that has just been uh, an emotional, like, just very emotional and very, very difficult to watch at times just because things are so raw between so many of these characters. But basically, since the beginning of the season, if not earlier, we have seen the swimming pool and we've seen Donna swimming in the swimming pool. And it's another AMC show where a swimming pool plays an important role. And... And Kevin, when when Cameron fell into the pool, I don't think I've ever laughed harder at the show than I did at that moment because it was it was so dumb that it's worked its way back around to also being funny again. Oh God, it was so funny! Like just it's it timing's everything. It's so unexpected that you would turn around and just like, fall into the pool. But God, it was so funny. The way she did it, the way she did it. And because this show, again, this show has never done a joke like this. Like, not the pie thing, it wasn't even a joke necessarily. No. It was something that happened, but this was just straight up a joke. Yeah, this was just straight physical comedy. Cameron already dressed down in a in, at this really high-end party, falling to a pool in front of all these people after getting this incredibly emotionally touching speech from Donna is just pitch perfect in so many ways. Uh, and what what a way to to do it on to take your comedic high on the final episode of the series. Sedona and Cameron have another conversation and the hesitation to work with one another again. And uh, Cameron and Donna both realize. Well, I think Cameron kind of knew, but I think Donna has come to the realization that Haley is gay, and <laughs> that is a conversation that they are going to need to have at some point. Not in the series, though. Yeah, I just love like I think Haley's gay. It's like, yeah, I think so too, and that's it. That's all it is. It's lovely. Um, and then they go to the warehouse. Something I had not realized was that Gordon was in Donna's old office and Joe was in Cameron's, and I thought that was a nice touch that I hadn't even realized. Me neither. Yeah, but I thought that was a fantastic touch. Uh, Cameron and Donna talk about working together, and they actually play out the scenario. They come up with the name, Phoenix. Uh, we see the Phoenix symbol above them. I'm not going to make any X-Men jokes. I'm going to play it straight. Uh, they think about the arguments that are going to happen, but how this time they're not going to let it destroy them, and then at the end the Phoenix symbol goes out. And uh, that was another really that was another really touching moment because... They, they seem to have matured to the point where maybe they can work together. And they, they both acknowledge and understand that things are not going to be perfect and that they're still going to argue, but that this time they're going to walk in with the mentality of, we are friends and we have this relationship and it's going to work out a lot better. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a great scene and it was one of those things where it feels like they put they finally can put the past behind them and if they wanted to work together again, they, they definitely could do it. Understanding it's not going to be all 
sunshine and roses and just as partners that they may argue. But as long as they make sure that they could, that they've grown from their mistakes, they can make it work again. They just need an idea that they could both really sink their teeth into It's just too bad. Neither of them have that idea. At this point, no. And Haley is restarting a project and listening to the tapes that Gordon recorded. So we did not mention this, but Gordon talks about recording himself and that every time he needs to calm down or is feeling symptoms really bad, he would listen to himself talking. And that is what Haley is doing. And uh, it was a great way of getting uh, Scoop McNary onto the show, even though we don't see him talking to his daughter. I think this this is also a very touching moment. They really They really just nailed all the moments that they needed to in a really great way. Yeah, I thought this was incredibly touching and a great way to bring back those tapes and keep her connected to her father. And it brings back the cassette player she was listening to in Joe's truck. So it all kind of came together really, really nicely. And uh, I, they found a way to keep Gordon involved in all three of the last episodes, which I really like. But there's also a part of me just knowing like internet culture and stuff that having it, it also would allow them to actually have Scoot McNary's name on like the IMDb's for all those episodes. So if someone was looking ahead or finding cast lists or whatever, they would see Scoot McNary's name in all of those episodes and not, because if, if he wasn't there, then you would see he wasn't listed on any of those three to put together. Have you seen the ratings for this show? I listen, I know. I So I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that they had this conversation, but I just am thinking as an internet person, that could have been something that would have been done or, or it would have come out ahead of the final season where like Castless dropped and Scoop McNary's name is not in episode eight, nine and 10. You know, the, uh, the Pulp Fiction, John Travolta gif where he's just looking around and nobody's there. That was me watching Halt and Catch Fire literally as the show was happening. I feel like it was me and six television critics watching the show on AMC on Saturday nights in the final season. What's insane is since I started watching this show with you, I've seen at least two people mention how underrated and underappreciated halt and catch fire was just like out of the blue no it's definitely a thing and i think it's one of those it's one of those situations where people heard about the show and how good it was but quarantine has given them an excuse to watch it and i think that's true for a lot of shows right so there you go uh halt and catch fire maybe hopefully will find its its audience on netflix and now that it's accessible and people know about it and have the time and all that stuff uh, so hopefully nope there's time now and hopefully we're doing our little part to shine some light on that as well. Uh, so we get Cameron. They are in a diner and Cameron is on the phone with her mother telling her that she is going to head to Florida. She sits down with Donna. I love that Donna brings up Comdex and the possibility of a 3D printer. And all I could think about was, did the brothers finally make a printer that works? <laughs> uh, I would like to think so. I want those guys to get a victory. Uh, they certainly deserved it. We will never know. If they did. And uh, Donna says that she is going to pay for everything because Cameron is, of course, unemployed. We see Donna looking around the diner a little bit. And then you you don't see a light bulb go off, but she seems to have some idea of what to do because she goes out and looks at Cameron and says, I have an idea. It's porn, isn't it? So there are there are actually theories as to what Donna was. <laughs> no, that. Well, as we saw in this season, that's not a revolutionary idea. No, I mean, literally the first link that Haley clicks on is porn because the Internet. The one the one that I seem to buy, the the one I buy the most is that Haley or not Haley, that Donna looks at the jukebox and figures out putting music on the Internet. That's my theory, Um, because it's 94. It's just before things like Napster, 
next year in a few years. So that that's my working theory is the jukebox is what inspires her. And it is music that is going to uh, be her idea. So so she's going to become Lars, Ul- Lars Ulrich's number one enemy soon is what you're saying. So she is maybe there is that distinct possibility. Although in that case, that is a total baby face turn. It is. Metallica is just it's either this year or the next where they have the first album with their haircut. So they're just about to make their heel turn in the world. Uh, they are. So any any thoughts on do you have any theories or does that one make sense? That makes sense based on the time period. The next thing I thought of was like maybe they come up with like instant messenger or something like that. Like I was just trying to think of like what was like the next big thing that kind of comes up. I think maybe like chat rooms are somewhat similar to community. And so maybe that's something she's thinking of because she's seeing all the patrons that, you know, chatting with one another. But I thought either chat rooms or instant messenger were the two things I kind of thought of. Two things that would never be problematic in any way. Nope. Just fine. Perfectly normal. But that's not how the show ends. And it's it's a really strange ending because Donna and and Cameron have been the centerpiece. But it's almost like the writers wrote this ending to the show before they actually realized that Donna and Cameron were the centerpiece. Because we get a montage of Joe at the end. And he's in his fancy car, he's got a suit, and he's got a briefcase. But he is not um, working in the tech world. He's working in the humanities department at either a private high school or a university. It's never really made clear, uh, but he is going to be a teacher, and this is very clearly his first day. Um, there's a Peter Gabriel song playing over this, and the show, they are, the show literally ends where it began, where Joe asking or saying, let me start by asking you a question. So that's how the show ends. And it's also worth pointing out that the thing that I really liked about this montage is that Joe has pictures of Gordon, of Cameron, and of Haley. And I think that just shows kind of the impact that those people have had on his life. That, you know, he, yes, he did kind of abandon them to an extent, but these are people that have clearly had an impact on him too. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with that. I like that they're still part of his life even in that way. You know, who knows if he'll be in contact with them again. We obviously won't see that. But I also think this is a, a pretty natural place for Joe to end up, for him to really start fresh, is to leave tech behind. He gets to communicate with, I, I put in quotes, kids, you know, from him being 45 years old to these people being teenagers or whatever age they're going to be. It's his connection with them before he ends up, hopefully, you know, we'll see, maybe if he starts a family of his own. Um, and I think he... I think he's going to be good in this role. I have a good feeling about it. Like to me, him leaving tech and starting here isn't a loss. It's, it's a good thing for him. I would agree. And that's it. That is Halt and Catch Fire. Four seasons worth. This podcast is over three hours long and it's going to be fun editing it. And it's, it's on me to edit this one. So that's, uh, that's kind of how it is. But uh, Kevin, your overall thoughts. I mean, did you like where we started this? You had never seen this show before. There is kind of hype around it, but it's I think it's much more under the radar than a Breaking Bad or, or a Better Call Saul. So what was your perception of this show before? Did it meet your expectations? How do you feel about the show after having seen it all now? Well, it's interesting you say there's hype because I, I don't know that I knew anybody who watched it. I'm actually going to see my parents tonight, and I think they may have watched it, so I'm going to ask them about it. But... I really didn't have any expectations because all I really knew of it was its ads and it had to do with tech and it was in the 80s. I had no idea about time jumps or really who the principal characters in it or anything. So 
I watched it kind of coming in blind and I thought what the first season was, was basically what the whole show was. And I'm glad it wasn't not because the first season was bad in any ways, but I think the evolution of it kept it really fresh all four seasons. It makes the seasons very distinct. I think some shows you can kind of get them blended together for what happens when, but I think each one of these four seasons really stands out as their own unique thing. And if you talk about an episode or a moment or something, you can pretty much pinpoint exactly where it happens in the show. And so I guess just from coming in with not many expectations at all and seeing how it evolved and how well it was acted, how well it was written, it definitely exceeded my expectations. Um, like, I don't know that I expected to like the show as much as I did. And I don't know why that is maybe just cause I didn't know much about, or I don't know many people who spoke of it, but, uh, I, I, I was sad for it to be over. I'm sad there was only four seasons. There is something to be said about a show ending and not running its course or what have you, but also just knowing that AMC never really seemed to get fully on board, uh, with the show too, is a bit of a shame. Um, but it makes me interested to see what, uh, the, the Christophers who ran this and what Melissa Bernstein outside of, uh, and, and knowing her too, from breaking bad and better call Saul, what they're involved with. Uh, cause now it makes me interested to see what their future projects are going to be. And it made me a fan of all the, the, the principal actors, even more than I knew them coming into the show. I really didn't know anything about, uh, Scoot McNary or Mackenzie Davis coming into the show at all. I knew a little bit about Carrie Bechet and Lee Pace and, and Toby Huss, but now I find myself, uh, excited for their work to come. And during the process of this, like there was an, there's an ad for a movie coming soon that has Carrie Bechet and Joel McHale that I'm looking forward to because I was also a community fan, but now being a fan of both, of them, I'm really interested to see what that's going to be all about. So, uh, definitely be a big thumbs up for the show. This is a, this is a show that I've wanted to do uh, a mini series about basically since I started, this is legitimately one of my favorite shows uh, of all time. And I would certainly, certainly put this up there with, you know, a Mad Men or Breaking Bad or the first eight seasons of The Simpsons. And while it is unfortunate that they did not get the support from AMC, and while there are certainly some things that I wish were more cleared out about the show and that we got more time with these characters, I'm really glad that we got four seasons and I would rather be left wanting more than to be left disappointed because... I think there are other great shows like Mad Men, which I don't think the ending of that show is great. And The Americans, I don't think the ending of that show is great. And I think this show and The Leftovers, even though they did not get a lot of episodes, I like that a story was told. And I still really appreciate both of these tremendously. I think for me, season four, episode eight is still, I think it's the pinnacle of the series. I think it ranks right up there with Ozymandias and The Suitcase and so many of the best episodes of television that have been produced over the course of the last 20 years, over the last, over this century. Um, So I really, really like this show. And I was really hoping that you would like it as well because I was, you know, always a bit concerned whenever you start a new project like this that he's not going to like it for whatever reason, but um, I tremendously like that you enjoyed it. And... This is a show that that does that does mean a lot to me because of where I've been, where I was watching the show, you know, being in Chicago, going through a breakup, being in China to watch season three, when I moving to Memphis and watching season four, 
so yeah, this is a show uh, that means that means a lot to me because of how good it is and how good the performances are across the board. And it's funny, I did not watch the first season because it seemed like a Mad Men ripoff. And I'm really glad that I watched the season as it was. I, I watched seasons two, three, and four as they happened. And I'm really glad that I saw it then. And I'm really glad I had a chance to rewatch this series because it's a, it's a really, really good one. And I hope if people have been watching it because we are, that's even that's that's great. And I hope that if you're listening to this and haven't watched the show, go and watch it, even though you're spoiled now. Um, but it is it is well worth um, the less than 40 hours of your time, given all that there is. There's a lot of television out there. Uh, I think this show tells a complete story that is well worth going out of your way to see on Netflix. I agree completely, and I'm really glad you brought this to the table. Uh, it's Again, we, this is the first predicament I think I've been in where I haven't seen the show at all, and my co-host had, and I think it turned out really well. And, I'm, and I appreciate you bringing something – like you know me well enough by now that if you thought I thought this would suck, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have presented it. But I'm really glad you did because – I mean, there there are certainly there are certainly some shows that I like that I'm like, eh, I don't know if Kevin's gonna like that one. Sure. So there you go. And I'm so, but I'm glad you brought this to me because I don't know that I would have ever watched it if you hadn't brought it to me. Not for any other reason, just because there's so many things to watch, read, play, do whatever. Um, but I'm really glad you did, and I'm glad I got a chance to watch it, and I can see myself revisiting the show uh, in the future. All right, Kevin. So. What are we going to do next month? There are a lot of possible ideas. There is an infinite amount of television out there for us to discuss. But Kevin and I, so we make Simpsons references on every one of our episodes. and But there, there are literally a million Simpsons podcasts. So to do like a Simpsons recap podcast is stupid and not worth it. But I know Kevin and I both really want to do a Simpsons podcast and just get everything out in one episode. So what we're going to do, Kevin, is you and I are going to secretly create a top 10 list of our favorite Simpsons episodes. We are not going to discuss our lists with each other. And then we're going to podcast next, and we are going to reveal our top 10 favorite Simpsons episodes of all time. And and we do want to put them in order from best or, you know, 10, 10 to 1. Yes, we are going to put them. We will go from we will count down from 10 to 1. And they will be in order. You have to you have to have a favorite. You cannot have five or six. You have to have a definitive favorite. And I'm and I'm not gonna do ties. I'm not gonna do anything like that. It's gonna be a strict ten to one. Do we even wanna like throw in like an honorable mention or like just mystic kind of thing, maybe? Maybe we can th- we can we can do an honorable mentions list. Um, who shot Mr. Burns? Are we counting that as two separate episodes or one episode? I'm gonna count it as one. It's counted as one. Okay, that's fair because that's really the only two parter there is. Um, but yeah, I think that works out. That works out. So next month we are going to count down our our ten favorite Simpsons episodes of all time. My guess is that they will be heavily biased in favor of the first eight seasons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, come on, guys, give us a break. Like we're we're only human. We're just like every other Simpsons fan. There is. What's really interesting is, at, like, I'm at a time where I'm actually rewatching all this with my girlfriend. And it's her first time going through it, uh, and she's really enjoying it. So that saves the relationship, which is nice. Uh, but a lot of this is going to be more fresh to me than it would be. Like, obviously, I'd have to do a lot of rewatching anyways to get down a list. But I'm kind of already in the midst of doing that. So, and I never need an excuse to rewatch them. But it's nice to do this. And 
I think it is a little fitting because this the Simpsons episode will come out next month in June, which is uh, the month of both of our birthdays. So we get to do a little something that's uh, a little a little um, selfish for our birth month. Absolutely. And we are also going to address perhaps some problematic episodes as well. We will kind of separate those out if we want to. Um, there are a couple episodes I have in mind that might be honorable mentions slash problematic that we will also uh, discuss as well. And that'll be June. And um, so I'm taking a break from doing podcasts with Brian over the summer just because I've been podcasting for the last year and a half plus writing columns, doing my 100 favorite list. So I am taking the summer off from doing podcasts with Brian. Um, We are discussing Miyazaki right now, uh, his nine movies. But basically, June, July, and August, I will not be releasing podcasts with Brian. But Kevin and I only do one podcast a month, and we will maintain that schedule over the course of the summer. And that'll it'll still be really fun to to come together and do podcasts. And we have ideas for what we're going to do in July and August, Um, But I am taking a break from a lot of podcasting over the summer, except for this one. So, Kevin, you should be very honored that I'm continuing to podcast with you, even though I'm going on a break from the other one. You say honored, or do I feel obligated? You know, little of column A, little of column B. But, you know, I... This is usually the end of the episode where we do plugs and stuff, and you've done that a lot of the top. But, like, the, the truth is, without this, I'm tapped out because Adventure Time, Distant Lands, we don't know when episode three and four are going to drop. You and I are still waiting for Better Call Saul season six to come out, which looks like it's going to be early 2022 at earliest. So, we got to fill the time somehow, I suppose. I have ideas, and we'll talk about them off air. But no, in June, we are discussing The Simpsons. All right, Kevin, we have officially, we are officially finished. We're done. Goodbye. Thank you, everyone. Man, I just think it's crazy that this show came out in 2017 and the bonus scene was still President Yo-Yo giving us stimulus checks the first day of his presidency.